like the, the whole Google Voice Assistant thing, where it can potentially uh, make phone calls for you and schedule a haircut. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. It's also just super funny for me because you know that interaction where like you call a company, it's like press zero to talk to a real human being. It's just like you get a call from somebody and they're not real. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like as soon as both the robots realize they're interacting and they're both natural language processing. And they just switch languages? Yeah, just straight, <laughs> just fax machine to fax machine, just all that just crazy noises. stuff. <laughs> Hi, this is Sergio and welcome to the first review episode of the Toronto Tech Podcast. For this episode, I'm joined again by Ryerson student and close friend of mine, Paul Martins. We'll reflect on what it was like to launch a podcast, talk about tech, games, and music, and you'll also get to know me a bit better. Now, most of this episode is not review. It's our usual back and forth, which means almost 50 different topics in our episode notes. We recorded this in January, so the podcast had been live for just one month. Now, I've talked enough about it. Let's jump in to episode eight of the Toronto Tech Podcast. So what's going on, my friend? It's really cold outside. It is so cold <laughs> and snowing. Sorry, I'm just gonna reach over and grab my notes. Yeah, it's it is really frosty. I always joke that like in in the morning when you look at your weather app, that they should have one called feels like because there's always the temperature outside and there's like the feels like temperature when they incorporate the wind chill and everything. It's always like 10 degrees worse than you thought it was. Yeah, <laughs> give, give me it straight, doctor. Like it's so bad. I'm gonna make that up. And we don't do that anywhere else. I heard a comedian joking about this. Like, there's nowhere else where we're like, yeah, you're going to run 6K, but it's going to feel like 12K. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Dude, I remember once I volunteered for this marathon, and, and it was like downtown Toronto. And it was like, advertised as like just over, no, it was just under 6K, and it was like 3K we measured. <laughs> what? Like, so bad. It was like a, you could jog it if you want. I wouldn't even call it a marathon. Is 3K a marathon? No. no. A marathon is like 20 or 40K. <laughs> yeah. And there's those ultra marathons for the crazy people that are like 100, 120. Those people are nuts. There's one in the States that was like 120 miles or something like that. Like you, you can keep that. <laughs> you can keep that shit for yourself, dude. I don't even know where my ideas are. <laughs> yeah, that's just not, that's not for me, man. Running is so painful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not good for your knees. Like I used to live with somebody who was an avid runner and after almost every run, they'd come home and put ice on their knees. Dude, that's, like, oh wow. There's nothing I like enough that I want to then have to do that afterwards. <laughs> I can name a few things. It's the same like when I used to go paintballing. It was so irritating oh, to yeah. like clean everything. Everything would just get that's so That's true. Dirty. I think that's the appeal of Airsoft, right? Yeah, that it's a lot easier to clean up. Yeah. I don't think it's about the pain or not. I think it's about the cleanup. I kind of like paintball, though. Mm-hmm. I missed the... What was that startup that was some hybrid between like laser tag oh, and paintball? Oh, yeah. Battle, Battlegrounds. Yeah. They're like not yep. doing that anymore, right? They're an archery nope. tag place. They shut down. Yeah, they they did that instead. <laughs> that was, was like super it seemed cool. to me like they were at the finish line. They just had some technical problems that didn't seem insurmountable to me, but they gave up. So it must yeah. have been pretty ran tough. Ran out of funding or whatever the issue was. Just ran out of time. Ran out of good developers, maybe. But yeah, they had some cool ideas. They were 3D printed guns. They had like those halo displays on them to tell you how mm-hmm. many bullets you had in the clip. That was super There were different cool. modes. So you could, it could be a shotgun or it could be an assault rifle and you'd toggle between them with a button on the gun. Yeah, and they, they consciously made that decision to have those LEDs, not LED screens, the screens that have true black so it doesn't radiate in your face. Like it's not super mm-hmm. bright in the dark. It is LED, OLED, OLED. OLED? Okay, yeah. 
And yeah, that was which really cool, man. I remember talking to one of their devs and they had a really tough time interfacing with that screen mm. because there's a bit of firmware on the screen itself and you send it instructions on how you want it to draw. Mm. It's not just a video input. So there's a, I believe it was a serial connection or some sort of relatively slow speed connection between the two. And while they were using it, they found bugs and reported it to the manufacturer. <laughs> oh, wow, that sucks. Yeah. It did not sound like they had a fun time developing, like building the yeah, code for that. Yeah, that sucks, man, that you can't mm -hmm. just send it a video feed. And it, was always, it always bugged out. Maybe that was why. What did they... I think that's why they ultimately <laughs> folded, is they, they couldn't get through a round with zero bugs. They were developing in Java, and they just gave up. I mean, I don't want to say that was definitely the problem, but that was definitely no, part of the problem. Nah. What are your priorities if you're building this thing and you're decided to use Java because it has corporate features? Or what, what did they say? Enterprisey? Like, what the heck does that I'm mean? Stop that now. Yeah. <laughs> How's everything been, man? It's been so. Welcome back. This is episode seven. Yeah. And you were episode number one. <laughs> missed nothing. Just yesterday we put out episode five. So uh, I got one episode in the bank, and now I'm gonna have this one. Oh, that's awesome. Wait. So, what was the most interesting one, or the? Oh man, I can't answer that question. <laughs> it's a rude question. Uh, what was the most difficult one, though? The most difficult one in terms of editing was episode two. There were so many audio noise issues. Mm. I was trying to filter out, use this filter, use that filter, use this noise reduction. And ultimately the, the sound quality just wasn't good. That was a lesson learned. And we don't use, I don't use that mic anymore. I don't use that room anymore. Like there was a lot of echo in that room. Hmm. Episode six was the most difficult to record because I had to rent all this equipment, um, set everything up. It was the first time I was recording with multiple people. Wow. Um, and that, that episode's not out yet. I haven't edited that one yet. That's a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Right? Editing multi-channel audio was for the first time I did it on episode five. And I found that actually wasn't bad at all. What else, man? You know what the most challenging part has been? Is all the little things that I need to do. This little tweak on the website or mm. this little, like um, the episode, episode five, the title was really long mm. and it messed up the CSS style. So the the image for the episode was shrinking to compensate for Ooh. how long the title was. I so weird. I had to go in and figure out what was going on and fix that. So all those little things and then like, okay, putting it up on SoundCloud, figuring out SoundCloud's thing. I haven't even put it up on iTunes yet mm. because iTunes is the only service where you have to install something on your computer in order to sign up. Really? I have to download iTunes in order to sign up with iTunes. That's kind of ridiculous. Uh, and I've never installed iTunes on any of my computers ever. So for this podcast, for the first time ever, that's what I'm going to have to do. Dude, I remember having like an iPod, one of the old iPod Nanos. The ones that were still blocky before they had made the, the rounded ones on the edges. Mm -hmm. I had one of those and I remember installing Rockbox on it and just having the most fun ever. That's the best, best project, man. You could play uh, a bunch of lossless uh, file types, which mm -hmm. I think Apple only supports their version, like AAPL, whatever the hell it's called. Yeah, I don't know either. Their lossless file type. And then they also added like video capabilities on on on, on uh, iPods you wouldn't normally be able to do that with. They like redesigned the interface. It was super cool, man. I love that project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that that project coming out and the idea too that a non-video iPod could play video. The only thing was in your way was the software. Yeah. That really opened my eyes to oh my god, software might be the most important part of any device I ever buy. Because hmm. if I can adjust the software, I can make it do anything. Yeah, it was it was weird though. In order to get it to run, you had to like 
process all of your videos through some special software and put it in some like weird file type. I don't remember what it was because you know like mm. MP4 was like big back. I mean back then and now. Right. You don't want something massive, right? Maybe it just compressed it. Maybe that was what it is and rescaled an image, but it was like some really particular file type. Maybe there was hardware decoding for that file type, mm. but none and nothing of the other else, ones. Yeah. This is a good point. I mean, I never watched video on my. Can you imagine that? I think about that now. We have all massive phones and tablets and stuff like that. And some people complain that watching stuff on their phone is ridiculous now. But do you remember what it was like? A small what iPod it was like? Nano. It was yeah, just yeah. A square screen and. Yeah, it wasn't even the right ratio. It was just <laughs> this, this little tiny screen. But yeah, that was great, man. I loved it because it was like this thing that was now possible that was never possible before. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you remember when the first iPod Touch came out? Did you get one of those? I never did, but I, I remember clearly when it came out. Those things took over the world so fast. Yeah. As soon as they came out, first of all, every other MP3 player I'd ever used was difficult to use. Like yeah. it was not enjoyable. Most of them had bugs in some fashion too. You would eventually discover yeah, something. Yeah, that's true. And you know the battery lives wouldn't be good and whatever. So they, the iPods actually were a far superior product to everything else that was out. So I wasn't surprised everybody wanted there was them. Also, like that, there was um, was it Microsoft that made the Zune? The Zune, yeah. Yeah, I heard that was pretty good. I just never never tried one. Mm -hmm. I I remember using a buddy's, and first of all, I I never talked to anybody who had a Zune and then later said they didn't like it. Like yeah. everyone who had one loved them. And the best part was, I really felt like it was. It gave me ownership of the mm -hmm. content. So somebody with a Zune could just Bluetooth transfer a file to somebody else with a Zune. Like that's pretty cool, man. Of course, the technology lets us do that. Yeah. So, but it was the software that didn't on the iPod, right? I mean, that's still today, right? Like I remember having uh, an iPod Touch, and you couldn't Bluetooth music files. You can do anything, but you could do that with like the worst, like Android, the Nokia not even, block yeah. phone. <laughs> yeah, I remember doing that in one of my old classes. A buddy just had a song that we were talking about it and found out that he had this song that I wanted on his phone and I, I just transferred it to my phone. Yeah, it was awesome stuff back in the day. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I remember being in high school and doing that. Just like in between classes, just like sending yeah, my phone to the side. In the hallway. My buddy would just send me a track. And it would take like five or six minutes yeah, and just leave bad, it there. Yeah. Oh man. That was cool. Technology's come a heck of a long way since those days. Do you know anybody who still uses like a dedicated audio player for something like a, a like a physical like an, an ipod like just or an ipod because everybody just loads music on their phone right mm -hmm. like uh, smartphones have become absolutely everything for everybody i can't remember who i know i've seen do you remember the, the original one of the early ipods they were impossibly thin this was like iphone 3 era was or iphone the... 3g i guess um but I, I distinctly remember somebody still having one of those um and this is what they used Okay. And it was just packed with music. Yeah, they had some they had some mm -hmm. interesting products over time. Like the iPod Shuffle, you just clip it to you, it has no interface except for turning it on and off. Mm -hmm. And like I think skipping. Oh man, I couldn't take those things seriously. I remember seeing somebody on a bus that they were listening to music and they kept skipping, so they were just shaking this this box. No, that's hilarious. <laughs> like I would not yeah, desire it, this. <laughs> I wonder how expensive they were too. I can't really remember. But I remember them being way less expensive than all the other ones because, I mean, they didn't have a screen. They didn't have anything. They had, like, minimal storage. It was just, mm -hmm. like, to go running and have something clipped to you. Which is a great concept. The idea now that I can buy a product that doesn't have a screen on it, like, that just doesn't happen. Yeah, that's true. There isn't anything. It's, like, anything that doesn't have Wi-Fi capability built in nowadays. Yeah. Like, fridges. Oh, my God. I, I saw an article. I Ovens. Think, yeah. Coffee machines. <laughs> One day. Somebody's just going to hack into your oven. Should burn your house down. 
I saw a, a, an article. I'm notorious for reading headlines and then just like either judging it and being like, I'm going to read more about this or just being like, I don't give an absolute shit about this. I read uh, or I saw a headline that was a new smart fridge pings your phone when you leave the fridge open, like the fridge door open. I think it was on Instagram, to be honest. It might not even have been an article. And one of the comments was just like, if it's so smart, why doesn't it just close itself? <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. These smart devices, like you buy a Roomba, you hook it up to your phone. You get a notification oh when it starts, God. when it gets stuck. If it's so smart, don't get stuck. That's so funny. Actually, speaking of Roombas, do you know the Humble Bundle? Yeah. I'm subscribed to their Humble Monthly. They, have like, they give you like a bundle of games every month. And one of them, uh, I think it's like a humble grown product or game. Like they have their own studio and they release stuff from time to time. And uh, it's called Roombo. And you play a Roomba <laughs> when your family isn't home and intruders break in and you're supposed to stop them. And then when, <laughs> by being a Roomba. Yeah, just like bumping into stuff and like closing the door on them. And, or like, <laughs> I think you're also connected. Running to over a cord that. Or a, like a little piece of string that lets go of a pot that swings and yeah, hits him in the head. basically Home Alone, but you're a Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> and then after you get rid of them, you have to like uh, sweep up or like clean up the blood because <laughs> you're a Roomba. <laughs> Dude, you gotta see it. It's so good. Oh, man. It's a, that's probably the most unique idea I've seen in gaming since like I Am Bread. Which, I Am Bread. Yeah. There, there was one There was a... You work against each other. One of you is a parent. One of you is a baby. Okay. And the baby just <laughs> has to crawl around the home and try to kill himself. <laughs> and the, the other player playing the parent has to keep... So the, the baby can do almost anything, like open the, the under the sink cover and find cleaner. Oh, my God. Or, like, find a steak knife that shouldn't be... This is the worst. It's somebody designed... Somebody stood in front of other people and said, this and is I, what we should make. That's so funny, though. I wonder if ESRB will rate that game. As a like, mature. Yeah, would it be? Would it be? Well, I can't see that being like a 14 plus game. <laughs> yeah, I guess it could be. It's, it's less know, crazy man. than like shooting hookers. And that's that's true. That's only mature. But there were, no, I mean, wasn't there a GTA game? Because when I think of shooting hookers, I think of GTA mm-hmm. almost exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> can't name another game where you can do that. Maybe Saints Row, which is basically Grand Theft Auto. But um, yeah, didn't they get like an AO rating? I think it was for one of the mods of the game back in the day. Well, there, there was a mod that was... All that it did was unlock content that was actually in the game the whole time. You just couldn't access it. Oh. It was that hot coffee scene. Okay. This was a while ago. So, th- And there were rampant jokes all over the internet that, you know, I have to be 18 to see very crude, pixelated nipples, but oh, just 18 to shoot a hooker. Okay. Oh, <laughs> but just hilarious. mature to shoot a hooker. That's hilarious. Yeah. And that content was in the game, it just wasn't accessible. So okay. the devs like so left it in, but yeah. But is that like something that the SRB should change the rating for? Because that's no, because that's I think not because they, it's not accessible. Yeah, right. So who cares if it's there's some extra the bits left of what's in the game? Supposed to be playable, yeah. But maybe ESRB rating rates on the total content of the game, not the accessible content. Yeah, what's on the disc? Interesting. I don't know. Otherwise, you could just shovel horrible things into your game. <laughs> and just say you so can never reach it. But what's the point then? Yeah. They give you a lovely in, a manual on how to buffer overflow it. <laughs> <laughs> if you name your horse this. Oh, my God. What, a, what, a, what an amazing uh, exploit. <laughs> I'll never forget when I, when I exploited that Twilight Princess thing where you just yeah. name Epona some, like, 50-character string, stack, sma- uh, you know, overflow the buffer. Do you want to explain this in more detail so... Uh, people who are listening that's a good idea the the idea 
a buffer overflow is effectively where there's a there's a certain amount of space in memory that's set aside for you for a string for some input that you're going to give it. So for example, in Zelda Breath of the Wild, you get to name your horse. You can yeah. name it whatever you want. And visually, there's a character limit of what was it, 16 characters I or something. Remember, but what actually happened is when in the save file, when it saved that, it wouldn't just load 16 characters, it would load until the end of the string. So if you put in they never 400 characters. Yeah, they never truncated past the 16 character limit. That's so. right. So you, you just had to name your horse 16 characters of anything and then keep, keep writing bits and it would overflow part of the control of the software. So now, right after it finished reading in the name, it would jump to the next mm -hmm. instruction, whatever it needed to be, and you and could change that next jump instruction. Yeah. And that's how... How they exploited the Wii. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was the, the first major difficult to patch kind of... It wasn't a difficult to patch, but, but tons of people had the game. So now you could, if you had this game and your Wii was out of date, you could run your own code. I remember seeing one that was similar for Super Mario Galaxy that was, there's like the little, it's almost like a waiting room. It's like the castle of Super Mario 64 where you just jump into paintings to get to the next level. So it's kind of like the lobby for your adventure, right? And uh, in Super Mario Galaxy, it was that little galaxy and there's like a, you can walk around and stuff like that. And if you jump off the map, it just brings you back onto the yeah, map. Yeah, it picks you up. There was an exploit where they had bugged that interaction, where when you jump off the map, it was like, I don't remember what value it was checking for, but you could, like, I, I watched a video on YouTube of the guy jumping off the map, and then the screen just turns black, and you just see a bunch of lines of code just <laughs> right across the screen. It's so amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. They really um, demolished that system. I mean, they, they just... The developer, anybody in that community just exploited it to death, man. And I love reading about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Figuring out, you know, the theories that people came up with, like maybe this area has a vulnerability or maybe that area, and then actually checking the code. They made it so simple over time. They found better and better exploits. Like I remember you just had to load something on your SD card, and then when you went to the SD channel in the Wii, it would just run your code. Like you didn't have yep. to do any crazy weird things. Like you could have a totally non-modded, like non-hardware modded, uh, console and it would just run everything. It was nuts. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of it. Once once they get one vulnerability in and they can dump source code or they can dump memory or whatever it is, now they can look through that code and yeah. they find better vulnerabilities, things that are easier easier to exploit or they're harder for Nintendo to patch. Or and before you know it, you get to there were people who made their own Wii games like very unofficially. Yeah, man, I remember that. There was like the homebrew channel that existed. Yeah. You can install your, I remember playing Portal. It was like a 2D version of Portal and you could jump through. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You played I... like, a, like a platformer like Mario, but you had portals. It was <laughs> really cool. I think and it... somebody just made that, but they didn't go through the hoops of releasing yeah. with Nintendo. They just put it open source to the world. Yeah, because I mean, publishing is hard. Publishing is hard. I don't want to be a publisher. And <laughs> wasn't the dev kit for the Wii very expensive? Probably. Yeah, yeah, that was something I heard they got a lot. They improved a lot with the Switch. That the dev kit's very cheap now. Okay, that's good. And, you know, you can export from Unreal Engine, I believe. Like, there's first-party you know, first support. I Not saw first party. Was it? I saw an article the other day that was, I think, Fortnite and, like, Epic Games, are they? Yeah. Them and somebody else pledged, like, $200 million to open-source video game engines. Really? And I thought Just... that was interesting, because isn't Epic Games, like, a... Don't they own Unreal or they're affiliated with them somehow? I think Epic Games is, yeah, something like that. I think they so own it. So why would they? But uh, yeah, Unreal Engine is closed source. It's not open source. Right. Unlike the Unity, I think the Unity one is open source. 
It's not. It's closed source. It if is closed source too. So I think their their like licensing is it's free unless you make more than forty thousand dollars worth of revenue and then you have to pay for a license. That's right. Yeah. Which is perfect because as an indie game dev, forty thousand dollars of revenue is so far in yeah. the future. <laughs> or a student or any of that. Yeah. You yeah. Can just tinker with it as much as you want. I really like that. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah, my, my, my brother's done tons of tinkering with both, and he's got some strong opinions on the mm -hmm. pros and cons of both. Uh, like, he's come to appreciate the differences between yeah. the two. But I thought that was really interesting, an open source video game engine. Has that been done before? Yeah, I'm sure well, there's open the, source there's, video there's engines, like but on the scale ones. of, yeah, yeah, of really good ones that end up becoming industry, like, de facto standards. Right, standards. which today it's Unreal Engine and it's Unity. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of companies that write their own, but... That's true, too. EA, I believe, still has But Unreal own. is used by a lot of big studios. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, Fortnite is Unreal, and PUBG is Unreal. Did I make? No, I think that's right. There's a bunch of like notable ones. There's like that Dice Engine that used to run the Battlefield games. They also, I think they used it. They refactored like a ton of code and used that engine also on FIFA, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> that's pretty different. Yeah. Well, the, there's there's trouble if you do something like that, right? Like EA was trying to standardize on a single engine, and that because of like that, they had really shooters and they idea. had racing games trying to use the same engine, but the compromises, the things that you need to optimize for are totally different. Yeah. Right? One is a small map, fixed world, limited number of people. The other one is a gigantic map and you only want to load a little section of it at a time. Mm -hmm. Like uh, dynamic culling or whatever that's called. That's right. And you probably have checkpoints of like, okay, you've passed this point, I can unload a section way behind you. Mm -hmm. That's super cool. Yeah. My brother, me and my brother were talking the other day. Uh, we're just, I don't remember what we were playing. Some old video game. But he was like, when did uh, keyframe animation go away and when did actual ma motion capture happen? Like, when did that transition happen? Because mm -hmm. I remember playing some games, like you've seen like the old Counter-Strike 1.6 when people die, it's all like, really <laughs> blocky animations and stuff like that. And then you've mm -hmm. seen some new games where like people have conversations and their mouth is perfectly synced with like real life interactions. Then they've obviously motion captured that. It would be like absolutely impossible to keyframe that. When did that transition yeah. happen, man? I don't know, but I, I definitely see what you're saying. That there's so many games now where the animation is so perfectly smooth that it must be motion capture. Yeah. <laughs> and Do you remember? I, that? I remember in the I don't know. I want to say in the early 2000s when almost nothing was motion capture. So mm. a lot of games you would just have one arm move or one leg move, whatever's necessary. <laughs> You'd never have anything extra. It's amazing. And then all these like newer games came out that were all motion capture and all the movements were very fluid and very mm. smooth. And I remember noticing that difference and was just like, this is beautiful. It actually looks natural. Mm -hmm. I'm always curious to see, because they use a lot of motion capture for real life, like real life characters. Like if you, I don't know, you're going to make Half-Life 3 and you want Gordon Freeman, you'd motion capture as walking or something like that, right? Because Half-Life 3... Because Half-Life 3 is coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what about like... Um, like robots or something, like a large spider that has like eight legs. How do you motion capture for that? Or is it... I think you can't. Right? You're just going to... Or like you have a, a horse in a game, like Red Dead Redemption, you're just motion capturing a horse. That would be the worst. <laughs> I'm sure oh that's my not God, how that works. Effort. I, I don't know, actually. If, Maybe there's if people some, are motion some capturing software animals. you can like pin specific points on a skeleton or like apply a skeleton superimposed over an image or a video or something and then... Like pull motion capture from a video. Yeah, maybe. From uh, a 3D video, maybe. Or even a 2D video, I think it's feasible that you could do it. Probably super difficult. Yes. Do I think they'll do Half-Life 3? Yeah. Or what do you expect out of the series now? Like, everyone has been amazing. I don't expect anything. Yeah? Do you even expect a third game? Or? No. No, not I don't. at all? It's not that I don't believe they're capable of, of doing it or anything like that. I just... 
it's been too long. I don't think it's ever coming. Mm. I've heard a lot of people say like, oh, I hope it comes out for VR or I hope it's like some very immensely immersive experience. And, and I, I think that would be cool, but I think like, the way I played the originals like was just keyboard and mouse with headphones on. And I think I would love to see that true mm. all the way through the series, but I'm definitely open to change. You know, whatever the third one looks like, I'm honestly open to it and I'm going to buy it <laughs> like, and I'm going to play yeah, it. Let's be real world. It <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you ever play Black Mesa, the remake? Yeah, I, I bought it. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, they're not done yet. They're super close because that's what I'm really eager for because I think like the Half-Life 1 devs had said that the last section of the game they wished was longer, but they were under time constraints or whatever constraints they were mm -hmm. under, which is like that last Alien World, Zen. Yep. Spoiler alert. If it's a game that came out a long time ago, but still. <laughs> it's like a 10-year-old game. Yeah, I, I think, think it's, it's okay. Than that. Yeah. 20, 20, uh, 2004, was it? Oh, I feel like it's earlier than that. Was it? Okay. So, okay, if you like, haven't played it yet. It came out for the Dreamcast, and the Dreamcast, like, died in 2000, so, or 2001. Whoa! Did it really? Yeah. I remember I, that console was Actually, it might have been unreleased. I think they were developing it, and the system died. Because they also did... They, the PS2 was the Dreamcast killer, and on the PS2, they released Half-Life 1 Decay, which was Half-Life 1, but they also had a co-op version. Oh. And some aim assist in there, because you played on controller. But yeah. I had no idea they released part of that it's, on PS2. Yeah, it's not it's not Half-Life 1 campaign co-op. It's like a different campaign. Me and my brother played it. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's just more stuff in the Half-Life 2 world. Or yeah, Half -Life you world. play as two different characters. I think the, both of them are female. Sounds like Portal. Yeah, it's pretty good, man. Except I think the, the Portal co-op was two robots, right? There's yeah, like it was the, two robots. The ball I think one in the first the one you were, you were a, a woman. Because uh, if you ever yeah, saw you a mirror, were, you were a woman. You were wearing like, these things on your feet so that you could take landing from like six stories up in the air <laughs> she doesn't just have uh fox mcleod space boots <laughs> no they did a little bit more yeah i, I haven't played portal 2 co-op uh, i never played it oh no. man have you ever seen the the videos for it the release videos for the co-op they're so excellent mm. i i recently bought portal 2 when i when i have time i'm gonna play through it for the first recently. time recently what do you mean recently, recently like <laughs> over the holidays in december yeah so December 2018, I bought Portal 2, and I plan Absolutely. to play it now. <laughs> the winter sale. The winter sale. They get me, man. Every I bought time. Portal 2. I, I bought a, a couple of games. I don't remember now. I bought Into the Breach. That was the other one. What is that? Into the Breach from the makers of, from Subset Games, the guys who made Faster Than Light. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it looks pretty good. I got a, I have $60 on my Steam account from a gift card that a friend gave me. I'm just. Uh, oh, you've got. That's a lot of. That's, that's a lot of that's money good for the winter sale, yeah. <laughs> That's true too. Friends, good friends. What are you gonna What are you gonna buy with it? I have no idea, but I don't want to regret my purchase. Mm. May I suggest everything on my wish list? <laughs> What's on my wish list? Maybe like Divinity Two or something. I haven't done that yet. Oh, Original Sin, I think it was called. I don't remember. Yeah. I'm the worst. I, m I remember hearing really good things about that game. Mm. I played the first one maybe like eight hours or something with a friend of mine. That was really good. We just had a couple beers. It was like a Sunday. I just played Divinity. It was really good. What else are you playing or keeping your eye on these days? Because I know you and I are both game junkies to some degree. A bunch of my friends just started playing Overwatch again. And uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see on the podcast the face I just made. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, it's weird because I played it maybe like two-ish years ago. I don't even remember when that game was released. It's been over two years, right? I think so. Yeah. 
And uh, I, I like learned all the characters and uh, which ones I liked and didn't like. And then I come back and play it after so many patches have come out, and it's just like a different game. Like so, not entirely mm. different, but so many of the characters that you knew and loved were like changed, or they changed some things of. And that's always new to me. Like that was one of the issues I had with Dota 2. Like I played a lot of Dota, and then like maybe a year later, just like so many characters are changed, and so many little things like mm. the stat gain of this character, and then and then it changes your whole perspective on how to play. Yeah, and things that were absolutely viable before don't make sense anymore. And there's all these new strategies that have never worked before. Right. That's one of the things I love about Dota, actually, is that even if I'm away from it for six months or however it it's is, true. I come back and I have to relearn the game. It's totally different. <laughs> and see, you enjoy that. I'm like, I used to be super competitive. Like, I'm super competitive with everything. So when everything has changed and people are just mopping me, I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't like these changes. What is this? This is not okay. This is not the game I love. All of the things I practiced are gone. And I have to do it again. Mm -hmm. no, but the meta has changed so much over the years. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Oh, man. I honestly don't know how Valve wrangles all that complexity. Like, it's insane. How do they keep the characters relatively balanced? Because they're all completely different from each other. And yeah. there's like a hundred of them. <laughs> I mean, they definitely have had some... Uh, they've had some patches where certain characters were broken. Yeah. Certain metas that were a little bit ridiculous. They've messed up some numbers before, but like for the, for the most part, they have a beautiful beautiful game. Mm -hmm. I could never picture balancing that. That's right. It just seems insurmountable. I wonder how much what how much machine learning have they thrown at this problem? How many AI simulations and things I don't like think that? They have, man. I think you don't think so. Uh, just a giant swarm of beta testers. <laughs> no, I think you need like like maybe one to three masterminds to just sit down in a room and discuss it. Right, because I think for a very mm. long time, Dota One was entirely balanced by like Ice Frog or whatever his name and was, and a couple of his of his coworkers, yeah. people that he worked with. Yeah, I don't think you could have too many people talking at the same time in those kinds of like meetings or discussions, because there'd be too many conflicting ideologies on how you should balance the game. You know, I think you're totally right. Because of there's so much complexity, what you need is just a couple people who really got it all. Yeah, like I think. Even Magic the Gathering, there's like Mark Rosewater, who's like the lead designer of everything. And he has these crazy ideas that he wants to do. And then he has like an R&D team that help sort of investigate the issues that he puts forth. And I think that's the way to do it. He seems like a pretty open-minded guy. And I'm mm -hmm. sure, I mean, they're really successful. Mm -hmm. like, MTG has existed for forever. Yeah, that game, it's one of the card games that has stayed popular for, what's it been, like over 10 years easy. Oh, I'm yeah, not sure way more than that, I think. <clears throat> I think he he did a talk at GDC where he said 20, 20 lessons, lessons in 20 years. Yeah, in 20 years. So easily more mm. than 20 years, right? Spectacular. Yeah, I loved that talk. It was There were so many good lessons there. And a lot of them were applicable way outside card devs. They were yeah. things like leverage what people already know. Don't break patterns established from mm -hmm. huma humanity and society and things like that. So, you know, people already know what a Trojan horse is as a concept. Mm -hmm. Use Leverage that. Yeah, he also, one that I really liked was said, as a game designer, don't go super meta into everything. Like, there's some, some things that as a designer, you might be like, oh, this would be really cool. But at the end of the day, you just want the game to be, like, as simple as it is, just fun. Like, fun to play from time to time, right? You don't want everything to be super complex and meta and like, oh, this is a cool idea and very academic. Sometimes you just want to sit down and have fun. Yeah. And that's... Uh, and it's important to keep that. Don't lose sight of yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and Dota's done a great example of that, where they've got modes like Turbo Mode. Where if you're yeah. not in for, you just want to sit down and have a good dose of 20, 30 minutes of a game that you love, you know, you can have that shorter version of it. Or if you want something a little more chaotic, mm -hmm. they've got a different game mode for that. Not everything is that hyper-competitive tournament style. Yeah, although I love that. The hyper-competitive part? <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know, I'm super bad at it. But when, when, you, when you get competitive with people who are also competitive, but at the same skill level as you, it's a beautiful thing sometimes. Yes, it's, and it's so much fun. Like it's, yeah. there's, so, there's something so satisfying about having an opponent who is just as passionate about this as you are. Yeah, because there's one thing to play your game and then just like mop your opponent, but then there's one thing to, to play into your opponent. And those are two entirely different things, right? Mm-hmm. So like the, the back and forth, the, I do this, so you do this, and that makes me think of what I need to do next. And there's that long branching of logic that you need to do to when you're like to figure it yeah. out. And you you can you can sense the skill in the other player mm-hmm. through the little bit of exposure. So you're always thinking like, okay, this player has X Y Z history behind them if they're this good. So so this is what they're expecting. And this is you know, I love playing. It's pretty all that. crazy how much you can learn from somebody. Like how much you can learn about somebody's personality from the way they do things competitively. You think so? Yeah, dude. Like. Just playing like Super Smash Bros. Melee, you like mm-hmm. play with a friend and the way they react to certain situations or the way they get aggressive or their play style says a lot about themselves, right? They could be super defensive or super conserved or they can just be like all out balls to the wall aggression and stuff like all that. All the time. Yeah. Or even their philosophy of like, are you playing into the player or do you just have logic trees set up on how you want to approach situations? So are you seeing them as like a robot that you just have to find the interaction to beat them or are you actually playing against them? Right. You know, them as a person. Right, that speaks to how people think about the game that they're playing. Yeah. Is this a series of decisions that I need to make the right one? Or do, have I trained my emotional system so mm-hmm. well through so many hours of this that I instinctively am going to do the right thing? Yeah. And the way that you try to defeat an opponent like that, they're different. You have to approach them differently. It's always, there's always yeah. like those weird, weird little things that people do. Like if you've ever... Uh, this is true like of the kickboxing class I'm in right now. Sometimes you do sparring, and if you do something to them that they weren't expecting, sometimes they'll try and uh, do it right back to you, you know, throw it back in your face. Like, I can do this too. And you can mm. see that in so many competitive things, and you can, like, mm. I love that. That's such an interesting, that's such a human thing, you know what I mean? You're never <laughs> going to get that from, like, a bot. I mean, unless you train it. But Right. <laughs> that's true. So I wonder what evolutionary purpose that, that might um, I don't know. I think it's just like a mental thing because it, it's always like some explosive or creative thing. You know what I mean? It's like go for a hard read or something like that and I do this to you and then you do it right back, the same mechanic or the same movement or the same interaction. Right, but what would, what would cause that? I, I like to think often of if there's some pattern in mm-hmm. humanity, there's probably an evolutionary reason why that pattern exists, hmm. right? Like the concept of, you know, I want to help my neighbor there's a little bit of the we're all in this together kind of thing. Hmm. There's absolutely an evolutionary reason to that. We all have survived better, more easily, whatever, if we work as a giant team or community versus if we try to be independent. And then if we run out of food, it's over, you know, or That's whatever fair. it is. So I wonder what it is about seeing somebody do something unexpected. You get hit with, oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. What makes you throw that out again? Where did that come from? Yeah, honestly, yeah, you're right. Know. Maybe the answer is nothing. Like maybe that's just random. Just throw it back in your face. But like I, don't let it get to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Competition is good. Actually, uh, speaking of competition, in my undergraduate at Ryerson, there was um, a competitive programming group, and I always thought it was a little bit strange. So what they did was, at least from one of the discussions I had with one of the members, was they go to these competitions and they're given a task. And it's not like those ones you would do on like Leak Code or some website where you just practice certain skills. Right. It's like in a really crammed time frame, how well you can solve a problem and time complexity, space complexity versus your opponent. And I always thought that mm. was super weird because 
what that led me to believe is like, oh, the best ways to do things are like, how do you react under pressure? But is that how most software development goes? No. Like, is it really Never. immensely time? Like, is that the, the crucial linchpin on if your software is good? Like, how fast are you able to pump it out? Like, that's, that, I feel like you're teaching people the wrong things, right? Right. It's, it's an interesting thing. Like, it's an interesting trait to have, like, be able to, you know, work fast, of course. But I'm trying to think when that would be a useful thing to do. I think you need a little bit more of that in like a startup company where you, you are racing against competition and you mm -hmm. need to move as quickly as you can. But generally, 99% of the time, if you are trying to accomplish a task quickly, you're gonna introduce, you're gonna take shortcuts. Mm -hmm. You're gonna take on technical debt. And then next week, when you need to expand on what you did last week, you're gonna come up against those shortcuts that you took. And before you know it, you've got such, such tangled spaghetti that you yeah. can't add anything else on top. It's right. too much of a mess. I'm sure that all of the like the tests that they would do would be very small components of something, but and I probably mean, very isolated. Right. right. Absolutely. But yeah, but then you'd be missing out on so many things that are so crucially important, like readability and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And just sometimes the most time you'll spend is just thinking about the problem, thinking about the structure of the problem as opposed to like how fast you can pump it out. Seemed really weird. Maybe that's not actually the case of how it is and I got some bad information, but I just thought that was weird. Kind of conflicting from what you do in the workforce. Yeah, I, I, that is very weird to me that, that somebody would try to optimize that. Mm -hmm. Did you ever join any groups like that in uh, university? Uh, no. My undergrad was about software and networking and security, so I, didn't, I guess I didn't desire to. But I did join... There was a group that was interested in technology things, and so we'd have speakers from the industry talking about, this is what software dev is like for me. This is what security is like for me. Here's something called the Hack Lab that exists in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I went to a lot of those talks and presentations, but I didn't do like competitions and things like that. Seems weird. But uh, competitions exist a lot in a lot of places in, ac in academics, right? Like there's math competitions and science competitions and all sorts of kind of stuff like that, just to prove mm -hmm. how well you are up to some standard but against somebody else just seemed weird. Well, we, we see that everywhere. Like, it's, it's all about, I guess, getting better through competition mm. and that being the reason that you improve. Like, why else, like a spelling bee, you know? <laughs> getting better at spelling so that Dude, you can those be kids better are than so other people. so good, man. Have you ever seen that? It's actually oh. terrifying. I, I remember tuning in once and just like flipping through channels and watching some kid try and spell something and I'd be like, this kid's never going to get it. And then he gets it. And everybody does <laughs> repeatedly and I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, I'm, I'm such a lesser being than these yeah. kids. <laughs> what school did you guys go to? What did you go through that I... Seriously, man. And I never thought it would be interesting and then I, I was like, like two hours past that I was watching this thing. And, I... <laughs> and you caught yourself. <laughs> yeah. No, I know what you mean though. I, I have done something similar and I'm just like mind boggled yeah, these kids can spell this well and they know the history of the word they know where it came from yeah it just makes no sense to me it's like certain sports that you never thought you would tune into like i watched darts once for like uh, easily like 45 minutes again just flipping through channels or like snooker mm. like that winners. one's fascinating to me because the precision Dude, on that game it's, it's unbelievable. insane they're so good and when you can't make a shot the you do the next best thing which is tuck away the cue ball in such an impossible place yeah. that your opponent has to make like a double bank shot to get it. They're just like three steps ahead of everybody. Like yeah. It, when I play pool, I'm always thinking about like, can I get this ball in that hole? And that's like my main goal. But for them, it's like, I'm going to get that ball in that hole. So let's set it up for the next shot. And that's like the giant change. So yeah, they're two steps ahead. Yeah. And they're also thinking about if I don't make this shot because it's a difficult shot. Is it a compromising position for my opponent? Yeah. yeah. 
so yeah. crazy. That's why I love watching the high-level plays like that. Like the knowledge that it's, has to go into every move. There's that the strategic element of that, and then there's also the crazy technical ability of some people being able to curve the ball and stuff mm -hmm. like that. You're like, what? Yeah, being able to actually <laughs> execute that. That's so crazy. That's one of the reasons I love watching Dota and StarCraft is yeah. there's so much complexity and decision-making that goes into every little thing. It's so beautiful. It's Yeah. It's gorgeous. I could I could always go out to a bar, have a drink, watch Dota or StarCraft, and just <laughs> have a spectacular night. Are there bars you go to in Toronto where they show that kind of stuff? Uh, there aren't if any so. that I go to regularly. I've I've seen to like when there's tournaments going on, mm. like the last the international, the Dota international. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I did catch a game in a bar, but it's it's rare. It's such a weird thing. I would never picturing myself growing up. I would never think that that would be a thing that you could see on TV or at a bar or any public place that wasn't like. I don't know, super niche or like your buddy's place. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm surprised that it's not more prevalent. Honestly, mm. th these games that are televised, they're like, for example, in Korea, there's 24 hour StarCraft channels, TV channels. That's hilarious. Right? Why do we have zero of that here? Well, we Even, have Twitch. I feel like that's. And Twitch is awesome. But th there's, I mean, I don't have cable anyways. I'm just, I'm, but I'm still yeah, yeah, surprised yeah. that the, there's no it's cable mainstream. TV channels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I'm strong, strongly opinionated in this that I don't think we should follow um, the archetype or, or the structure that exists for like TV. Like I don't think we should seek that identity because I think for a long time people in video gaming just seek the approval of everybody in the mass. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Like the reason why certain things became so good or so complex or industries became so beautiful is because we strayed away from the norm, right? So when, mm -hmm. when I saw like Dota being on, it was like ESPN2 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I felt really conflicted because I'm like, I'm happy that this thing is becoming big. But at the same time, it's like, I feel like we're going in the wrong direction. Like, I don't know if, like, are, is our generation really going to tune into ESPN2? Like, I remember seeing <laughs> a, a bunch of tweets of just like angry people who are trying to watch yeah. football. Just being like, what is this garbage? Like, What just, is this? I remember that too. There was an explosion on Twitter of people yeah. not being happy with that. Like, this is not my esports channel. This is my sports yeah. channel. But I don't know. I think there's tons of great things that exist, like tons of great streaming services and ways to watch the game. And you can watch it in client too. So it just seemed kind of weird for me that it was playing on a, t a TV and that we seek that, like maybe it's not seeking approval. Maybe I see it that way. And that's not actually the narrative that is true. But I, don't know, I think we should do the things that we do the way we do them and not always try and find that approval. I see. Don't, don't try to fit into whatever structure yeah. has existed in the past because why is that valuable and important to yeah. do? Nobody watched fucking cable anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I haven't had cable in a place that I lived since 2009 or 2010. Damn, so it's been man. nine years. And even even at that time when we had it, we had it for one month. And I was the whole time I was like, guys, you're not going to use this. Why do you want to pay for it? Uh, and after one month, they figured it out and canceled it. That's hilarious. Uh, there's no there's nothing that desires me to. I just want to sit down and not choose my media. Why Why would I desire that? Sit down. Yeah, if you want some background noise, put on the radio or, or like cable, not cable TV, but like antenna TV. I do watch soccer on TV though. That's the one yeah. thing I do. And I mean, there's services for that, but mm -hmm. TV so good. TV so good. For, for, you watch it on what channel soccer. puts that on? Depends. If it's like uh, like Italian soccer, it's like channel 30, 30, 35. And like the English Premier League is either on 30 or like sometimes 22, but there's always some what, other. Yeah, what networks are though? I, I'm trying I, to think if they're on antenna or not. Is I my... don't know. Like, I think 35 is like TLN to Italian. Okay. I honestly don't know. Okay. Yeah. I just tune in from time to time. I remember 
my, my parents were getting so, so frustrated. They were telling me, oh, my cable bill keeps going up and up and up. And like, I only care about one or two channels. So I went out and bought a, a giant antenna, like the biggest one I can find. <laughs> and we installed it attached to their chimney. Um, okay. And, you know, she can pick up, my parents can get 20 channels. Free. Really, and they're they're digital. They're they're not analog, so you don't get weird picture artifacts. But is it? See, the thing is, we we want to, we've never canceled our cable, and my mother is the one who's like in charge of it, right? And she doesn't want to get rid of it because she really enjoys having like the weather, like news channels yeah. and stuff like that. Like just tuning into CP twenty four, which she does all the time, which is not good sometimes. Oversaturation yeah. is not good. Yeah, and they they do have the same nonsense. All right, so it just like drills it into you. But um, yeah, she can't she can't let go of those. And you know what I mean? I get that. And CP24 is not something you pick up with an antenna, but you get CTV, and they also have news yeah, and weather. Uh, and I <laughs> believe that's not the only news and weather channel, so yeah. uh, I get it. Maybe this is a solution I can also... Uh... It, it, honestly, my mom did miss uh, CP24 for a little while, um, but she adjusted and she gets her dose of news and weather. It's fine. Okay. And glow, like Omni is uh, on antenna as well. So oh, okay, awesome. Omni News. And oh my God, the money we've saved. Like the antenna <laughs> yeah, pay for dude, itself in two it's months. insane. They charge you for every little thing. They charge you for the channels. They charge you for the box and like how many boxes do you have? Yeah. It's actually insane. Like internet used to be the most expensive bill and now it's like not. It's, it's cable. It's cable, yeah. Yeah. It's cable or home phone. And cable is the one that's so crazy to me because all you have to do is erect a piece of metal over your house and you get channels for free that are in the air. Yeah, but you have to... Got to put that, that thing on the chimney. What if you don't have a chimney? What if you're not in a bungalow? Yeah, there's smaller ones. There's even little ones you can get and you just sit it on top of your TV. You won't pick up as many channels. I'm thinking but of those like it works. from the 70s. Those. The bunny ears? Yeah. <laughs> they look a little more intense now because the signals they need to pick up are a little more complex. <laughs> That's hilarious. But yeah, back then there were so few signals in the air. There, you had cable TV, you had FM radio, AM radio. That was about it, mm. right? Before cell phones were a thing, and you had like police radio and that kind of stuff. You didn't have cell phones, and there's there's like how many different spectrums of cell phones, how many different frequencies, a ton of them. And even cable TV, I think the bands were more narrow on what they okay. what they used. I could have that backwards. Maybe it's the other way. And we've actually we have less bandwidth for TV now. And nobody bought, you know, the whole the whole invention of CATV, cable TV, was um, there was a community antenna that was big. And you, oh, 10 houses would plug into it. Wow. Right? That was the origins of cable TV. That's crazy. We kind of just took that to extremes, and now we pay <laughs> a company to do that. Hmm. <laughs> so how do you, th- what do you think of, like, um, Twitch, which is, like, the equivalent of, well, a lot of people watch a lot of mm-hmm. media on Twitch, a lot of content, tons of, even, like, and it's stretched into all different types of media, right? Like, it's not just gaming. There's, like, you know, the everybody loves Bob Ross, and they have a 20, <laughs> 24-7 channel of Bob Ross. Yeah, you've never Twitch? seen it, man? No, I haven't. Oh, you've messed up. You've, <laughs> you've done yourself a grand injustice. Oh, boy. Yeah, all right. there's, like, talking, Right after this. There's podcasts. People play D&D, too. You can watch that. There's there's so many things you can do. And my, I guess my question is, is it's a single service right like everybody tunes in on twitch i wish i mean there are there were competing services there's like Ustream and stuff like that and i think mm-hmm. in asia they have some other ones too i think gom tv is still going what is that uh it's same thing for games yeah i believe okay. there's one from korea that was really popular okay okay yeah but just like so much content is just shoveled through that single mm-hmm. that single service and uh, i don't know if it's like a monopoly necessarily but it is it's getting there if it's not already 
I, just, I think it is getting there. Although, honestly, Twitch has been such a good company. Mm. Like, as I've seen them and the way that they've been with streamers, the way that they deal with taking yeah. down content. Like, YouTube is a, is a lot more ruthless and a lot less, like, caring, mm. I would say, in that. Um, but Twitch has been, as far as I've seen, so good for the fans, so good for the people who are streaming. What, what I've really liked is for certain communities, like really small communities for video games and stuff like that, mm -hmm. they've like, they have like these incubator people. Uh, not, this is definitely the wrong title to give them, but like they help try and get communities moving or like uh, get streaming moving and a lot of things. Like for, oh. you've seen like the Beyond the Summit stuff or like the Twitch people that are official for like Smash Bros and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Like they hired people that have been in the community for forever, right? Like Bobby Scar and stuff like that. Which is like commentator for the game, also an old player. They hire them to do what for Twitch? Um, just kind of like organ organize events, and I think like just keep them posted with tournaments and stuff like that, and see if they can uh, like. Mm. They're kind of affiliate to the program. So it's it's like a community ambassador for that. Yeah, game. exactly. Got it. Uh, that was really. That's cool. amazing, and it makes sense for Twitch. I'm glad that they're big enough and like profitable enough to be able to do that because yeah. I know they were pretty rocky when they started. They were stretched pretty thin. But I also thought it was just really cool awesome. because so, so many people have been in the community for so long and it's something they're just super passionate about. See them get paid for it or ultimately be able to oh, give no, back. It's so good. Yeah. I see that because the Smash Bros. Melee community has been around for I don't know how many years, yeah. over a decade. And it's still going strong and more, more people than ever are making a living off of that. Yeah, for sure. You know, it, that was not feasible when it got started. Or even, even five years in, it was still not impossible for people to make a living. But now... I think like Mango loves streaming. He's on Twitch all the time. Yeah. Um, and he's got a massive following. It's so good to see that. For a community that I love so much, like Melee, it's so good to see that. Yeah. And I'm sure there's tons of other ones. Like in fighting games, there's like the new DBFZ, Dragon Ball Fighter mm -hmm. Z, and there's like Skullgirls and all the equivalent games that like people love that are so community driven. Yeah, I really love that. Love it. So what else did you have on your agenda? Oh, on man. Your, on your notes? So many things. I wanted to talk a little bit about the feedback that I've been getting for the podcast. Ah. Um, and one of the things has been people don't really know me. Okay. Like, I, you, when you and I talk, it's very back and forth, so it's fine. But most of the other ones have been very interview-based. So it's like them talking for a while, then I'll ask another question, and them talking for a okay, while. Okay, okay. And my personality doesn't, hasn't really shone through on these episodes. So I was hoping to get... Uh, I'm intending to... to be better at that. That's one piece of feedback that I've heard quite a few times. This podcast, it's been gratifying, but it's also been so much work. Mm -hmm. You know, everything between the website, the different accounts, uh, all the editing, figuring out what equipment I needed, and just getting everything coordinated, getting everything together. I feel like it, it's it's a ball that once you get it rolling, it's rolling. Like as soon as you get the equipment for it, as soon as you stop rent, like stop renting stuff, you're like, I've finally figured out the products that I want for these. This exactly. Podcast. You, you, you'll be all right. The only yeah. thing that comes after that is the editing, though. That's that's the big. Yeah, the editing is going to keep being a big time consumer, <laughs> but that's the way that it is, man. And I'm I wouldn't change it. You know, this is what I've signed up for. Machine learning solutions. Too. Yeah, it's crossed my mind. I've actually <laughs> looked. I looked for something that could detect breaths and automatically pruning that out. There's no way. That, that exists? It doesn't exist. I couldn't oh, okay, find okay. it. I'm sure someone has built it. It's probably just closed source. That's hilarious. Some really cool solution. I wonder. I really wonder. <laughs> now, there's, some things have too much of a human element. Or that's my perspective. But Like what? Like just editing in general. Just being like, oh, that's like too far delayed. Or this person took a really long pause. And I don't know if you can teach. 
that. I don't think so. Yeah. There's there's so much humanity in speaking, in speech. Even simple things like the amount of pause before somebody starts speaking affects how they start speaking. Hmm. I don't think I want to nerd too much out on that. But I mean, I used to think that like, oh, natural language processing is something that it's like, you're never going to get right. Because people always like say like, um, or they pause or they stagger in certain situations. Or they'll say half of a sentence and realize that it's better phrased in other ways. So they'll, they'll start their sentence again. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered how like software, or pro- like natural language processing would work. Like would right. it ever be good enough to, to deal with up. those hurdles? Mm-hmm. And I mean, largely it has been, right? Like I've seen some pretty crazy things. Like have you ever seen, even just on YouTube, the there's like automatic closed captioning. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty accurate for the most part, except when you get weird situations. Like somebody has like a heavy accent or they're yeah. talking about something that like the name of which like can't be found in the dictionary. Yeah, and yeah, then you get weird translations yeah. for that. Mm-hmm. But you're right, things like closed captioning and natural speech recognition, oh my God, they're so much better than they were 10 years ago. It's crazy. And we've been able to apply it everywhere, like you're saying. YouTube just has a button now. Yeah, man. That's pretty crazy. I think we're always gonna be progressing forward in terms of capabilities as mm-hmm. a society. And if you look at what's possible to automate today versus 10 years ago, like the, the whole Google Voice Assistant thing, where it can potentially uh, make phone calls for you and schedule a haircut or schedule, you know. Dude, that's so weird. Yeah. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. <laughs> that's the thing, right? How is it gonna change the societies? Because people aren't <laughs> mentally ready for that possibility. It's also just super funny for me because you know that interaction where like you call a company, it's like press zero to talk to a real human being. It's just like you get a call from somebody and they're not real. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Picture somebody at a hair salon like, please, can you just listen to me? Like, (laughs) we're booked on Tuesdays. Like, you can't come in. Where's a holiday? And the system just doesn't know how to interact with that. And it's just like hanging up now. (laughs) Oh, man. Where's going to, yeah, there's going to be a bug somewhere where it just gets into a loop or just like doesn't get it. Every Tuesday it schedules you for a haircut at some salon. (laughs) 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 Or you just show up and there's no appointment. Like, that, that would suck, though. That would suck so bad, especially when people are, because the use case for it is I'm super busy, so I don't want to make this call. Mm-hmm. And then if it does book you for something that you haven't, hasn't been agreed upon by the other party, then you just go to a haircut that hasn't been scheduled and you've wasted all your time, which is the reason why you use the product in the first place. Right. right? Yeah. The potential for bugs in that system so, to me are just funny. They're <laughs> <only> funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I'm just waiting for the day where it's just robot on robot. Oh, yeah. We're almost there, man. Yeah. If Google Voice makes a phone call to some sort of speech recognition (laughs) system that listens and tries to answer your question. Somebody needs to make a service that's like, argue with my internet service provider about my bill. And then it just (laughs) (laughs) robot to robot interaction. Oh, my God. The time that would save. Or, or like, do you know the amount of energy you spend negotiating with your phone company for like, I've been a customer for a long time. You're raising your prices. I don't want to pay more. Look, I'm loyal. That's super funny. Could I automate that with the system? Please. Please. I never want to have that conversation again. It's just like as soon as both the robots realize they're interacting and they're both natural language processing. And they just switch languages? Yeah, just <laughs> just fax machine to fax machine. Just all that just crazy noises. Stuff. <laughs> the bandwidth would be unbelievable. Dude, I'm waiting. Yes, please. I can't wait to hear that interaction. <laughs> It wouldn't happen. Where, where we get like a couple years of machines learning how to talk to themselves faster than English or this, whatever this language allows. sounds like a conversation somebody would have in like the 40s about what the internet would be. Like mm-hmm. computers interacting <laughs> with each other. How would it work? It would just be noise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
And that's what we got, the dial-up modem handshake. Everybody, <laughs> if you're as old as we are, you, you know exactly what that sounds like. It's the most beautiful sound. It's funny how we've come to like it right? and recognize it and think happily of it instead of how much it drove us all insane. <laughs> Man, it, it's, it's like embedded in, in pop culture just everywhere now. Like, I remember listening to, it was like when Stevie Aoki was popular, which is like that DJ. Mm -hmm. Really long hair that just throws cake in people's faces. If you <laughs> ever looked into him. One of two people who's ever thrown food on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I remember the start of one of his sets, like for like a session he had a really long time ago. The beginning of his set was just the dial-up sound. Was it? For like a solid couple of, like maybe 10, 15 seconds. And then he like mixed it into other music at the same time. It was really wow. weird. Wow, did he like take a snippet of that and loop it and use it as the beat? Kind of. But wow. he, he chose specific parts in the dial-up sound that had like peaks and valves, like really weird changes in pitch. And then he would just make sure that that, like he found a specific rhythm that worked. Like yeah. obviously it's like pre-rehearsed, he figured it out. He, and then he found something that matched that exactly hmm. and mixed it in. It's really interesting. Wow. It sounded like shit. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the robots loved it. Yeah. The machines loved it. That was really cool. That is very cool. I don't cool. much care for him in other, in other ways, but. Bye. Something that I really like, like live music is, is live music and you got you got to love real true musicians and something about just like jumping on stage and then throwing a giant cake at some lady in the front row. <laughs> Who was super into it. But yeah, it doesn't satisfy me as much. Well, I remember um, somebody took the si sound chip from the original Atari or the Atari 5200, whatever it was. Okay. And, you know, it wasn't capable of a lot of different mm -hmm. sounds, but they used it to make and mix music. And then took it to an extreme, and I'm going to find the video and link it in the notes. Made a guitar-looking thing with the sound chip and the different ways you could modulate the sound chip were buttons and dials on this guitar-looking thing. And this guy had like a small concert where he just had music from the Atari. That's super cool, man. It was amazing. And it, it sounded very machine-like and very robust. It sounded like what you'd expect from yeah, the Atari yeah. 5200. But, but you can make, the creativity that goes into that... It was mind-boggling. I watched that a couple times. I was so you impressed. You think about some crazy soundtracks that you were listening to when you grew up. Like, just some of them were so beautiful. Like, even stuff for the Game Boy. Like, you can remember all those little beeps and bloops that, that like, existed in Pokemon and stuff like that. Yeah. Some of the soundtracks for games were excellent. Just absolutely excellent. Um, yeah. And that was a whole skill. There were people whose lives were composing music yeah. on those audio totally. controllers, right? One of the soundtracks I used to love was, like, the Earthbound soundtrack. Mm. That was super cool. There was very fitting music there. Like, yeah. I appreciate uh, artists who've made music for a game that fit the mood of the game perfectly. Mm -hmm. And that was such a difficult thing because you didn't have a lot of freedom back then. You had only constraints, right? You had only eight different bits you could flip and one or two modifiers or filters you could apply afterwards. It wasn't like, what was that Sega console that, that had the most insane audio pipeline? You could do anything you wanted. I want to say it was the Dreamcast, but I think actually it was the one before. Before that, there was a bunch of funky ones: Sega CD, Sega Saturn, mm -hmm. the Sega Master System. If you remember that, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> I think was that the one? They had this crazy, ridiculous um, system that was like you would get a. You remember the Sega Genesis? Yep. Right? Yeah. There was one that in the cartridge slot of the Genesis you attached. It used that interface, and it was just like extra processing power, extra VM. Yeah. And then it had another bay for cartridges, like its own cartridges. And then I think it was cartridges. But then they added to that. So there was three pieces that assembled itself into a system, and they all required their own power. So, wow. <laughs> so you just had this giant, like, 
three plug system that you plug into your wall which occupy all the outlets yeah. <laughs> just amazing you need to run an extension cord to another outlet because yeah. it's three <laughs> just think about that you have a tv and one console occupy four four plugs in your jesus wall. Yeah. christ and the, the the technology architecture that must have been there, like the circuitry to get a processor to talk to another processor to talk to another processor Super to get something useful on yeah. the screen and get audio. I can't imagine writing that code, honestly. There's some crazy weird things that have happened. Like, do you remember the Sonic and Knuckles game? Yeah, I, I had every single one. It's so crazy that you would put in a cartridge that has a bay in the cartridge and then put an another game Sonic on, on it. And it yeah. became an entirely different game where you played as Knuckles. Like, how does that... How do they yeah, do you that? could play the game that you slotted in on top as Knuckles, which they added. Yeah, that was unbelievable. Modified, modified code. I remember one of those, one of the games that you could attach easily that way. You could, you would play through the entire Sonic and Knuckles, and then once you finish that, it would automatically go into the other game, and you'd play through that, and it would form this like twice as long epic game. Dude, that's crazy. It was beautiful. I loved playing through that. That sounds so technically difficult. I wonder how they solved that. I'm not okay with this. <laughs> I wonder if there's an ultimate talk about that. You know, there's the yeah, ultimate yeah. Game Boy talking. Oh, man. There has to be. I'm sure somebody's just... By now. Yeah. Yeah. I love those talks. They're so fast. The ultimate Game Boy talk was just getting into every single component, every single game, everything that happened with that console. Even in game... This, this is the reason why I think... Like, what I said earlier, I think, is so important to me is, like... We did, like, or not we, I was not a part of this at all. <laughs> <laughs> we as humanity. The gaming industry has, has done so many cre insanely creative things that have strayed away from the norm that I don't think we should seek approval by, like, you know, trying to get it on TV or stuff like that. Like, do you remember, mm. you know, Rob the Robot? Everybody loves that yeah, character yeah. from, like, Smash Bros. Um, he obviously was his own, uh, he was his own, like, I don't even know how to explain it. He was the robotic operating buddy. And he was released alongside the Nintendo Entertainment System, like the original NES. Yep. And you could get him and you could plug it in. And, and they basically marketed it towards like single children. Like if you were a single child, you would get this. Yeah, you'd have a partner to play with now. Yeah, exactly. And it was so cool. Like his eyes would lock to the TV if you had a CRT. And he detected changes on the TV. So like you would give operations to the game and it would change the background color of, of the screen. And that would tell Rob how he was supposed to interact with the game. Whoa. Yeah. Super cool. That was a concept we had back in the NES days. Insane. That's insane. And I, I remember, so me and my brother, we chipped in and we bought one, like a Rob. A Not, real Rob. Yeah, yeah. And so we had to dig up a CRT. And uh, dude, when we turned on the TV and he had batteries in, we switched them on. Like we didn't even have the game running. I, dude, this freaked me out so hard. As soon as it like the CRT turned on, it turned its head and looked straight at the TV, and a red light Get turned on. Get out of here! And I, I was like, it's taking us over. <laughs> it's happening, dude. It was so weird. You just hear like, and it would turn and look at the TV. It's terrifying. All of my nightmares came Whoa. true. And yeah, then was... after, it would blink the light and turn at you and said like, "You're next." <laughs> it shuts off the TV. The thing has telepathy. Oh, oh man, no, God. it was crazy. And we, unfortunately, we got a bad version of Gyromite, which is the game to play with it. Mm. What do you mean a bad version? Uh, like you just the put it in the cartridge and it just didn't work, yeah. Oh, so that's too bad. This is something that I thought was super interesting. Me and Daniel, my, my brother's name is Daniel, so we were playing uh, Ocarina of Time the other day. And I wondered, the game was so long, and there's so much talk, people data mine that game, right? Like, they find every interaction that exists. They find all, like, items in the game that weren't in the game, or, like, you've seen the speedruns. 
uh, where wow. people like seen this find out of bounds regions that allow you to do certain things or get to other parts of the game you shouldn't otherwise be able to access. Mm -hmm. People have found so many things to do with this game, and the game is packed. And same Majora's Mask was slightly shorter, but is like these are immense games. How large do you think the N64 cartridge was in terms of memory to store Ooh. all of this information? I I should know the answer to this. I think it was in the ballpark of 16 megabytes. It was eight to 64 megabytes. Wow. Take that in. That's insane. So at most 64 megabytes. Yeah, there's no game that was larger than 64 megabytes. Jesus. The opening cutscene of modern games can be 10 times that. Which is, which is super interesting because actually the game that was the largest, I think, we looked this up, was Resident Evil 2. And it was 64 megabytes. And the reason why was that it had video in it. So video is obviously yeah. hard to compress down yeah. and look normal, right? But a lot of games back then, they didn't have video cutscenes. They were rendered cutscenes. Right. right. Because that was, that's what you could fit onto that cartridge. Exactly. I thought that was just crazy. Just this, this game that we spent so many... I, I think I played like 40 hours of Paper Mario and that fits on 64 <laughs> megabytes. Like that's mm -hmm. insane. I remember um, Animal Crossing, six, the one on the 64, yeah. was so small that they actually didn't end up releasing it for the... I think they ended up releasing it Japan. for the GameCube instead. Yeah. Oh, did it come out for 64 in Japan? I think we have a copy of it. My brother no loves kidding. stuff like that, yeah. Wow. But you can't actually put it in the cartridge. It doesn't fit. Like, there's these notches in the back of the console that, that help you. It's like, Is you that how they implemented region system. locked? Yeah. Mm. But there's some funny video on YouTube we found where you can just file down that section of the cartridge and then it fits. And it plays? It'll work? I, I think so. Or there's Isn't an, the video there, codec like different? An, yeah, so it runs at a different frequency, like a refresh rate. And so yeah. I think there's a way that you can change that. I'm not sure. Hmm. I genuinely don't know. But I've seen videos of people play the Japanese version, like on, in, on North American systems. Probably plugged in not to a CRT, right? Probably plugged into a modern LCD TV that can just handle the signal. Yeah. Animal Crossing is such a beautiful game, man. <sighs> I was talking about it yesterday with a friend of mine. I went over to his place. And he was <laughs> just the one thing I always settle on in that game was how much of a crook Tom Nook was. <laughs> yeah. Like, no matter hey, what. I, you didn't ask me, but I expanded your house. You owe me $600 million. Yeah, actually. You're like, what if I wanted a bungalow? And you just ask three <laughs> floors and you're in debt forever. Oh, man. Oh, that game, as far as I'm aware, that game invented the grind. <laughs> and what did you do to actually make money in that game? You, you just did it. went down to the people. beach and got yeah, seashells and sold them. for people. Like, fish fished, for fish, yeah. yeah. And for some reason, the value of the fish that spawned at nighttime was like yeah. thousands of dollars. Dude, that was, and all of the horrible dad jokes that they had for each of oh, the. Oh, God, no. <laughs> for each of the fish when you would catch them. Oh, man. What a good game. It's such. Oh. It spawned a whole generation of them. They're still going. Yeah. And people love those Animal Crossing games. I love those so Animal was... Crossing games. I don't know why I love it so much. I love the Street Pass. Remember the one that came out on the DS? Yeah. And you just had to, if you were in public transit, your game was asleep and you'd pass by somebody else who had the game. There was some interaction that happened. I never that got that beautiful. one. That was beautiful. But uh, I heard people really liked it. But the, the fundamental was the same as always. You just ran around doing errands and being in debt forever. <laughs> yeah. I love those kinds of games. And Harvest Moon comes to mind. Where oh, yeah. it's so simple, but somehow they've structured the game in such a way that you appreciate these little things. Like, I just got my first chicken. I hatched it. I go in and I feed it every day. That game was so therapeutic. Yeah, I, I did so much fishing in that game and so, so much just planting of random stuff. You go into the city and buy a new seed and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That game was crazy. You go home, you plant it, you water it every day. And like in 10 game days, you get something out of that. And it didn't feel like this sluggish grind. It felt <laughs> satisfying. Yeah. 
actually a friend of mine I was talking to her the other day and she was talking about Harvest Moon because she used to play it a lot and she was like I think it was the N64 version because there existed a version for the N64 she's like there's a section in the game where you can walk into the forest and there's just a funky looking mushroom on the ground and if you take it everything just gets wavy and changes colors and then you wake up at home <laughs> she's like I didn't get it back then but that's insane man. <laughs> they put that in a kids game in a kids game well it didn't mean anything yeah you know that was that sounds like uh, the graphics designer funny. guy just really wanted to try this. <laughs> He's like, "Oh my god, I need to find an excuse to put this into my game because it's possible." That's so funny. I wonder if that inspired a certain scene in Stardew Valley that I'm thinking of. Mm. There's this beautiful cutscene that you have an interaction with somebody, and I think it's only implied that you get really high, <laughs> but everything starts going wavy and you're dancing and everything's flowing. You ever see like that '70s show where the wallpaper is moving in the background? Have you never seen no, this scene? No, not oh, that scene. It's so good. It's like literally the first episode of that 70s show that uh, he's talking to his parents and his dad gives him the car and as he's having this conversation, he's just blinking and opening his eyes really wide <laughs> trying to look sober and the wallpaper behind his parents is just moving. <laughs> Dude, it looks so good. We'll see if we can find that to link it. It's so it's. So I'll amazing. put that, I'll look that video up and put it in the description. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, so I was just looking at books. There was an article that was just recommending books. It's like books that every computer scientist should read. And this is one, uh, like about the theory of parsing and compilers and stuff like that, which I probably will not read in entirety, <laughs> to be honest. But at the beginning of the book, there was this quote by Alan J. Perlis. He's an American programmer from like the 60s. And he was the he created Algol, which I don't know anything about, an old programming language. <laughs> but this is the quote. I think that it's extraordinarily important that we in computer science keep, keep fun in computing. When it started out, it was an awful lot of fun. Of course, the paying customers got shafted every now and then, and after a while, we began to take their complaints seriously. We began to feel as though we were responsible for the success, error-free, perfect use of these machines. I don't think we are. I think we're responsible for stretching them, setting them off in new directions, and keeping fun in the house. I hope the field of computer science never loses its sense of fun. Above all, I hope we don't become missionaries. Don't feel as if you're a Bible salesman. The world has too many of those already. What you know about computing, other people will learn. Don't feel as if the key to successful computing is only in your hands. What's in your hands, I think and hope, is intelligence. The ability to see a machine as more than what it was when you were first led up to it, and that you can make it more. That's the quote. Mm. That's from the 60s, and I feel like it could have been from last week and have just as much relevance. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly when that quote came out, or when he said this, or wrote this, but I, I thought that was super interesting. Yeah. And it says, this book is dedicated in respect and admiration to the spirit that lives in the computer. Oh, that was wow. really cute. That's something there. I think the people who have been passionate about computers and computing and figuring out how to make machines do something useful... Mm. There's always been those people. There's always going to keep being those people. And it sounds like the mood or the, the approach ha isn't changing. It hasn't changed. We just have a ton more people in the industry now. But your, the visionaries are the same. I don't really have a point to this. But I'll never forget the, there was a book um, that I didn't read yet. It's on my <laughs> list. It's called Hints for Computer Systems Design. Hmm. Because nothing is ever concrete and like rigid. Every single problem is unique enough that the tools that you need to solve it, the approaches that you need to solve it, are different than every other project that possibly has ever existed. And someone figured this out really early. This was, a, this was from, I think, the 80s. And that's why this book was called Hints and not Rules mm -hmm. for Computer Systems Design. 
because every problem is unique. I, and I really feel that. Every time I go yeah, in I like to solve that. some computer science problem, we, whoever the team is, needs to figure out what to do. There's not some roadmap. Right. A friend of mine uh, who is in my program, he, he gave me some really good advice. And I don't know if he heard this from somewhere or somebody had told him. But he's like, what is, what is the characteristic that a true artist embodies? Like a visual artist, like a painter or, or right. a, a designer. And he says, they have the ability to see something in the, in the most minute details, but they can, they can make you feel something in the least amount of pen strokes or the least amount of brush strokes. And you've seen like those minimal artworks where it's literally just like a couple of uh, strokes of the brush and you instantly recognize that that's a person walking or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or that's like supposed to be a bird in the sky or something like that. They really are able to sum up the, the, the object in the fewest amount of pen strokes or like hmm. brush strokes. And I think that's, that's it. It's boiling it down to what the essence of the object is or the essence of the artwork is. And he's like, that's what you should do with computers. Like he's, he was like, you can't entirely think about all of the crazy complexity and all of the tools you can do to solve this job. Just boil it down to what the critical core pieces of it are. Right. What, what the, are the actual problems yeah, that you need to solve? What are the problems that you are solving? And solve those problems. Don't think about all of this crazy other environmental stuff and all of the languages that are important and tools that you should use. Yeah, what does that even mean? Should right. I was like, dude, are you in second year? What, where'd, you get, where'd you get this <laughs> Were knowledge you born from, wise? Are you a re reincarnation of this guy who wrote this book in the 60s? Oh, uh, maybe he's a savant and I just... It's like Linus Torvald's kid mm. came to Ryerson University. <laughs> Ooh, don't. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Actually, you were speaking of coming to your university. You mentioned to me the other day that Mozilla was doing a talk. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's actually a talk. Uh, I wish I could pull up the email. But essentially, they're just coming in to have a discussion about like all of the open source projects that I guess they need volunteers for or that people might seek an interest in contributing to. Whether it's, I don't know, paid work or volunteering was not really clear. But uh, yeah, I think they're just coming to one of our student lounges too, which is super informal, and I kind of like that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Just hanging out. They're all going to be wearing t-shirts. Yeah. And I hope it's like devs but I, I don't know if that's going to be true like i don't they have like very many like marketing and advertising people that would come and do this kind of things hmm. i mean they must to some degree their their company's been around for a long time yeah. they've got tons of initiatives yeah but uh, it's true i'm curious if it's a dev or if it's somebody who's dedicated to mm -hmm. that yeah dedicated for that task i'm sure that's the case but it would be super cool i'm super interested yeah i think mozilla has given us so many beautiful things so yeah and they're really a stand for doing the right thing on the internet you know I can always trust that Mozilla has my interest at hand mm -hmm. in the decisions that they make, in the software that they release, in the projects that they take on. Whereas, for example, I know that Google Chrome is less worried about what is valuable to a user, what's important for, let's say, internet neutrality or privacy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Their interests are more in other areas, like having flexibility or, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I remember reading an article that was talking about uh, just Firefox in general and why they need to exist because they're sort of like a company. They're, they're not part of like a for-profit company, right? They're right. obviously a non-for-profit. Non, non yeah, Mozilla is a non-profit. Non <clears throat> right. And so how important that is because you may have like uh, Chrome or if you have the biggest browser vendors that are all part of like uh, some company that like makes money is for-profit, mm -hmm. they might push things um, spec-wise or like for the new standards that play into their hand as a company and not play into the community's concerns for what's actually important, right? And I mean, Google is definitely a company. They've definitely done that. a bit of that, right? Where they're, they're building a browser 
I don't want to get too too into the weeds of this and yeah. say, but it's say just good to have a company that's not for profit that that is is agnostic about that kind of stuff. Yeah, and they're yeah. that's right. Their voice is not in the interest of profit or yeah. whatever their products are. Yeah. yeah, philosophically, I like that. I like that there's a company for that, and, and I'll support them in that. The world needs that. Yeah. You know, it's an important part of life of the ecosystem. That's one of the things. It's interesting to me that I spoke to a Chrome dev who even supported that we don't want every browser to be a fork of Chrome. So if Firefox folds and Internet Explorer Edge, they all become forks of Chrome. They're just different op- flavors of the like same thing. Opera recently or something. Yeah, like Opera that. is a fork of Chrome, mm-hmm. of the Chromium or Chrome project, whatever it is. <clears throat> so Chromium was open source, and Chrome was Google Chrome's version. I don't know exactly the, the line. But I know that yeah, Chromium is the open source. Chromium is what I have installed on this laptop. Oh, but I'm not I'm not clear on what the dividing line is. Okay, because I know there's some open source projects that a lot of for-profit companies will, will contribute to, right? Because they have an interest in using that service or using that product or using that whatever. But Google Chrome is like developed entirely in-house, right? Do they do they contribute to Chromium or have they just taken that and just molded into what they needed and they're like, yeah, we don't need you anymore? I'm not sure how that works. Maybe there's some. Uh, special flavoring or secret sauce they're adding to Chrome that isn't part of the open source project. Maybe that's the difference. I don't know. What else you got? Mm, I got quite a bit of stuff. So I'm still nailing down exactly which mics to use. So this is the first uh, episode that we're using these lapel mics. I kind of like these because I can like move around and not worry about where my my face is. Yeah, it's, there's, they're a lot more natural that way. Yeah, yeah. But we'll see the, the audio quality, how much different it is. I would love to just have an actual studio so I can attach a mic and you can have it on a boom and you can just move it with yeah, you. That'd be beautiful. That would be best. But So we'll see how this project evolves. The sound quality has been good. Even the episodes that, like episode two where I was really worried, um, the sound quality was still good enough. It, it was not challenging to listen to because of the sound quality. So that's been positive. That's good. What else? Oh, yeah. So part of why it's been so time-consuming and difficult is I wanted to use Toronto-based companies as much as I could. Hmm. So the the domain name that I purchased, the web hosting that I have, they're all Toronto-based companies. Oh, awesome! Um, so that's that's been that's been awesome. And for example, when I'm uploading a new episode to the website, if I do it from my office, it takes less than one second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I <laughs> Which like is it. It's beautiful. So 50 megabytes just goes instantly. Bang! Love that's it. Pretty awesome. Yeah. And they've been perfect. Like I don't think there's no anything complaints. holding these companies back from being more popular than they are. Hmm. Yeah, it's been phenomenal. I don't know a lot about that that kind of stuff, hosting and uh, deployment and stuff like that. I'm very new to that. That's not... It's it's very easy these days. You know, if you have an idea and you want to assemble a website yourself, there's lots of platforms like Wix or Squarespace or I'm forgetting the third one that. You don't have to be a technical person. You can show up and drag and drop and slide things around and build the web page that you want. Right. Um, you know, but my desire to leverage Toronto-based companies pushed me away from those kinds of things. Hmm. And also, then the performance is is perfect for Toronto. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Um, the website. There's a lot of assets coming down at the beginning. I haven't optimized it to the extent that I want to, um, but it's fast. The page will load in half a second, no matter where you are. Nice. What else? Yeah, this, this podcast has been a huge learning experience for me. Yeah, you know, really. I've never done almost anything involved with launching a podcast, including conducting interviews or audio editing. I've done almost nothing of that. Because I think a, a structured interview is really different from 
like having a conversation with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, especially when it's somebody super technical or like is an expert in their field. Yeah. Like the, the way you, like, cause you casually talking to somebody, you wouldn't like prod in or interrogate certain conversation ideas, right? Just cause you're, I don't know. It's not the format. Yeah, it's a different, it's a different flow. Right. And that's been something that um, has definitely been a learning experience for me. I'm still improving, but um, taking, you know, I've signed up for diff for more opportunities to speak so that I get exposure to that. And yeah, that's true. I'm taking a course in early February on communication, for example. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's something that I want to improve on. And, you know, I'm committed to this podcast. It's not going anywhere. Uh, I'm going to keep running this. I'm going to keep putting all my energy into this. Um, so I know it's just going to improve with time. And it also gives you the ability to have really good conversations with people you might otherwise not have conversations with. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's so many things I've... I've been able to learn or a perspective of somebody that I've been able to understand because of these. So it's been huge for me. I think I've learned so many things that interest me hmm. from this podcast. Well, that's only a positive. Yeah. So I hope that continues because I, there's, I always want to learn. There's always more to learn. That's how I feel. So who are people or topics you'd like to talk about for like future or like domains you'd love to dive into? Yeah. I've yet to interview anybody from a makerspace. So Hack Lab or Site3, mm -hmm. there was a beautiful conversation I had one one of the open houses at Site3 that I wish I had just recorded. <laughs> it was it was so good, and we kept jumping to different interesting topics. So I have uh, contact with those guys, but I haven't reached out to them to set up an interview. Got to do it, man. Got to do it. That's that's one of the key things that I'm missing. What's holding you back? I just haven't done it yet. Yeah, I know. I'm just talking. It's on the to do list. <laughs> it's it's always that way. Yeah, there's there's always a hundred steps that I need to take ahead of me. No matter. So it's, I've come a long way, but, and actually that's one of the things I wanted to mention that um, if anybody's interesting, interested in helping or contributing to this project, I would absolutely welcome students or professionals or anybody who'd like to give anything like, you know, an hour a week to as much as you want. Hmm. Yeah. Or um, even some project that you find really interesting you want to talk about that seems like a good format, right? I guess. What do you if mean? If there's like a listener who's like, oh, I know about this like embedded systems or something like that. Do you want to talk about it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If there's anybody listening that thinks that works in Toronto or lives in Toronto and they have uh, work that would be interesting to talk about, to listen to, absolutely reach out to me. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it's really starting <clears throat> to snow out there. It's yeah. kind of nice. <laughs> it looks beautiful until you go oh, outside. I love the snow. If I wake up in the morning and open <laughs> my blinds and it's snowing, I'm smiling for the rest of the day. Dude, I just wish it was acceptable to just wear snow pants to the office. <laughs> In the <laughs> office? Yeah. Like, you know when you were a kid, you'd like go to class, you'd wear your snow pants, jump in the snow, just dive in, and then hang them up outside after. Yeah. Or like outside your class. Those are the days. Those are the days. What's stopping you, man? It's not about approval. It's not about... <laughs> sure it is, man. What do you mean? <laughs> you just don't want to wear them inside. You always hear that. Yeah, the squeaking of the boots <laughs> and the, the friction. Of the snow pants, yeah. yeah. Just in your office. Especially, like, I, I, I move around so much when I'm programming. Like, I touch everything on my desk or <laughs> I drink water, like, a billion times. I go and fill up my water bottle all the time. And, like, I had to get dampening rings for my, my, my keyboard so it's not... Is it too loud? Uh, no, it's not loud. It's, it's um, I have uh, black switches. So they're, like, they're heavy and they don't make that much noise. But if you bottom them out, which I do a lot, I just clack all the way. So I bought uh, dampening rings so that it just doesn't clack. Like, this is not plastic on plastic when I bottom out the key. Right, there's a Yeah, there's a little part. bit of rubber, yeah. So it makes less sound. 
just to be courteous, because there's a guy in my office who has like the loudest blue switch keyboard. And you can hear it from like across the office. And I know somebody who's like, like it's one of the older dudes in the office just like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Especially if they're a furious typer. They're... Oh, and he is. I feel like he's just sending angry emails all, all day long. <laughs> he's not working on anything programming related. He's just Meanwhile, like... Meanwhile, he's writing poetry. And <laughs> roses are red. Violets are blue. This keyboard is loud. Your software is bad. Please fix it. <laughs> <laughs> He just oh. had, he's typed that so many times that he just has a copy paste a notepad open, <laughs> a sticky the macro. <laughs> I I love those macros. I leverage so many of them now. For example, there's a checklist. When I'm finished the story, I need to go through these seven checklist items to to close mm-hmm. it all off to make sure everything's been done. That checklist I've needed to copy paste so many times that I just have it on. I type in six letters in a row that would never come up. Just bang bang bang. And it just writes out the checklist for me. That is awesome. I like that. A Never lot. again. There's there's so many things <laughs> I've been able to to just be lazier about. Yeah, and one that. thing that I, I started using a lot more is I, it's just this really small command line uh, program called uh, Code Spell. It just checks for spelling mistakes, and I, it's such a oh. little thing. Like in your comments and in random things. I find is this a browser plugin? No, no. It's like totally just runs in command line. So it just looks into oh. source files and just checks if like any of the documentation you wrote or any of the comments you wrote have spelling mistakes in them. To be honest, I use it just for my own personal like learning because I'm so bad with spelling. So, Yeah, you know what? I would get so much out of that. I can't even tell you how many times I post a code review um, and someone's like, it's perfect, but you spelled contract wrong. <laughs> Contract, just like... I do that all the time to the point that it's just like, that's a Sergio mistake. <laughs> yeah. So I would get that. You gotta in, do it. In Sublime Text, you can turn on and off spell check. Yeah, that distracts me too much, though. Yeah. I like to do all that editing right at the end. I just want to free flow my ideas and then, like, spell edit or ch- spell check after. Mm-hmm. Like, even when I write, like, when I had to write essays for my undergrad, I would do it all in Vim. Like, it just... You, would, you write essays in Vim? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's fast. I like it. It's what I'm comfortable with. So, there's never this, like... Because the one thing I don't like about it in, in, like, working with Word or something like that is there's always, like, some indentation error or some margin error. You hit tab, it tabs yeah. the whole paragraph It over. doesn't do what you expect. Yeah, you just want to punch a hole straight through your screen. Yeah. So uh, so I just do it all in mean? Vim, and then I format it after and edit it after. I think that's the way to do it. Hey, LaTeX. Yeah, and if you ever want to know, like, how many, what word count you're at, like, just come out. It's right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, I know what you mean, though, about the editor doing things that you don't expect and you push backspace and you expect it to do just backspace one character, but no, it gets rid of a tab that it put in on its own. Like, that's so unacceptable to me. Yeah, that drives me bonkers. I'm all about a computer system, having a computer system that works exactly the way I expect because that way I can do things so much quicker. Like me, and this is just a tool that I'm leveraging. It's not something that's making autonomous decisions on its own. I'm not into that. I'm into a tool that works predictably and that adds value to my life. Yeah, I took a, in my last semester, I took a, like a usability, not a usability course, just like a UI. User experience? Yeah, sort of course. And it was just one bullet point that's just been forever in my mind because of the way it was phrased. But it was, uh, software should be a tool for you and not a demigod you pray to for rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how often do people treat it that way? Yeah. How many times do you feel like you're just taken out? Like you thought you were in control and then it's just like, nope. Nope. Or like, especially with Word, that, that whole tabbing thing drives me insane. 
or you're just in the middle of typing something and the program crashes and it's like, would you like to recover? And you just instantly went, like, no matter what you were doing, you forgot. Yeah. So I hate that. I hate that so much. Vim is never going to have that issue. Like, so long as you know what's going on. Like, so yeah. long as you've used Vim before, or whatever tool you feel comfortable with, Sublime, Atom, uh, VS Code. That's it. Although I, I have had Sublime Text crash on me. Really? Once. I think I've had... That's not the only editor I've used that's crashed on me. It's mm. super rare. Um, I, I haven't had Sublime crash. I've had one tab stop respecting my keyboard inputs, and I, I don't know what causes it. It's happened maybe five times over my dev super experience. Weird. And I close the tab and open it again, and it's fine. It could also just be like random plugins you have, right? It's probably it's more likely that because I've got a laundry list of plugins. That have... <laughs> That's funny. Git gutter, and then like all these snippets. And oh man, Git gutter. I don't think there's any plugin that I that I adds more value to my life than <laughs> Git gutter. I think there's one really cool one that you know the um like the idea JetBrains projects like uh, mm -hmm. PyCharm and IntelliJ. Yeah. They have a Git gutter, but you can also click each of the like the little thing in the gutter you can click and expand and it gives you options like do you want to revert uh, revert this change or yeah. do a comparison yes yeah I really i've seen like other those. people leverage that a lot i always go to the terminal and type git diff or type yeah. what i want but sometimes but i've seen scrolling those tools. through it is a little pain in the ass sometimes yeah and having that right there i've also seen a plugin that adds so much value where it detects the unit tests that apply to a function that you're writing Whoa. and you can just click a button on the, in the is gutter and launch or? it this was not in Sublime. It was in the JetBrains tool. Okay. PyCharm. That's so cool. I don't know what plugin that was, but I've seen someone else use that, and I was like, whoa. That is beautiful. Oh. But at the same time, do I need that? No. We have yeah. unit tests. The project that I'm working on right now, there's 147 unit tests, and they run in under a second, all of them in total. Whoa. So I'll just run all of them. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah. That's how, but that's how I choose to work. You know, if if some if some other tool has value, you, yeah, don't look for approval. Like what you're saying, do what works for you. Like many other people that I work with in the office, they they have three screens open, and they all have code here, code here, browser here, the README over here, and that's how they work. They need they like to just look up and have access mm -hmm. to the piece of information that they want, and at a glance, at a glance, everything's right there as they're working. For me, having a single screen. With a single thing in front. You don't use another monitor. I use one monitor. You're a madman. <laughs> Having lots of things open, I find that sometimes I'll, I'll tab, I'll tab, and I'll lose which window actually has focus. And I think I'm typing over there, and I start, and I'm typing over here. And I'm in Jira, so I'm hitting, I'm activating hotkeys. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I'm just like, oh, I never want to have that. That's the best. But I think I'm the only one in the office that works that way. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine anybody not using multiple monitors. You're but at, at home, I, I love having multiple monitors. My apartment now is, is too cramped for it. But where I used to live, I had three monitors, and I used all of them. I went to a house party of a friend of mine. He like runs his own company, and uh, he has six. He has, six monitors on yeah, one machine? Uh, yeah, six, mo sorry, five and a, and a TV that has the logs for like his prod servers running. Wow. Yeah. This is a dev? This is not a finance guy? No, this is a dev. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds really ridiculous, and it is really ridiculous, but like, <laughs> like two of them are not dev-related things. Like, I think he has his emails open permanently, and he has like a Slack window open up on one of the other monitors. Like, once you have enough monitors, you just you really only ever use three Macs, right? Yeah. And the other ones are just like extra padding. And I don't know, to take a look at my inbox at a glance at any moment, that would just add stress to my life, <laughs> not the other way around. That's true. But I get it. And somebody who's owning a business, you have to be responsive. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that goes into that that I'm not ready for.
that guy deals with a lot of stuff that he you, we wouldn't want to deal with like yeah payroll and insurance and contracts and all that kind of shit that you just i would not care right and business meetings and it's all minimizing meetings is such a desirable point for me in my life i can't imagine that <laughs> yeah very that, i really admire that guy he uh, works incredibly hard and he still has a crazy amount of hobbies i don't understand this guy he's like has all the hobbies i wish i did like, <laughs> like he has a He's like, I'm super into motorcycles and he has a motor, he has a motorcycle. He goes to the track all the time. Like in the summer, he just goes wow. like almost every weekend, just posts new lap times, gets better at it, improves at it. Yeah. You, you've had a motorcycle for a short amount of time years, now. Yeah. Three-ish years? Uh, yeah. Four almost. Yeah. Almost four years. Yeah. And I remember you talking so highly when you got one and how it was this whole world. Of, yeah. Um, I love it, man. It's super. I mean, you take a serious liability in owning one, right? Yeah. But it's just the benefit for me is so good. Like I, I've learned so much just about like mechanics and like taking care of something you really love and like how much freedom it gives you and all that kind of stuff. And I love it. There's just so much about it that I would take the risk for. And I'm I I drive like a grandma, so like <laughs> really realistically, liability is a little bit different. But that doesn't save you from some guy that's just flying down the street doesn't look. Yeah, just taking you out. Yeah, take somebody pulls out in front of you when they really shouldn't because they didn't see you. That's yeah. So some, I mean, I've almost been hit by a truck once. I've almost gone into multiple accidents that I would consider not my fault, but uh, avoided them. Thank the Lord. So the risk is there, but yeah, I love it, man. And anybody who takes track track days and track racing seriously, I respect. Because there's a lot of people who will buy a motorcycle and they'll just drive as fast as they can on the highway and just get right. their adrenaline out and never really respect it or learn a lot about it. Like even our cousin, for example, Lionel, who mm. he always had oh. the quote that if you're not afraid of it, you're an idiot. Like yeah. if you, if he you have had a, performance motorcycles like yeah, he, he used to go to the track all the time. Yeah, thirteen hundred or thirteen hundred hours, uh, not horsepower. Jesus, CC. Thirteen hundred horsepower on a motorcycle. <laughs> no thanks. Basically a jet plane. Uh, no, thirteen hundred CC. And like uh, he had a bunch of Suzuki GSXRs that were a thousand, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, he's like, if you're not afraid of a thousand cc motorcycle, like you're an idiot, or you just, or you've been riding for thirty years and you've done all the track racing that you yeah. can absorb. So, but even then, you'd be a little bit afraid of it. Yeah, that's true. If you if you're not terrified of having that much power and that much potential unsafety, right? Yeah, yeah. So as, so many... as a cyclist in Toronto, I can really appreciate that. If somebody else, you know, it's it's you on the road sharing the road with these cars and these trucks that are massive. And if one of you guys makes a mistake, you pay for it. Yeah. I, I remember watching this interview that I thought was super funny. It wasn't about motorcycles. It was actually about Formula One. Uh, I think it was like Kimi Raikkonen or something like that, who is a Formula One driver. And he was saying, like, basically, so to preface this, in Formula One, uh, one of the things that's really important is you have... To make certain turns, you actually have to go faster because the, the faster you go, the more downforce you get from the wind. And that's what mm-hmm. helps you keep traction and make a turn. So if you slow down, you actually are doing yourself a disservice and you might go wide. So you have to really just, <laughs> you got to know the balance of the throttle, when to be on the throttle, when to be off the throttle and, and really take those corners fast and don't be afraid. Like you really have had to do done it and have confidence in yourself. And I thought this is crazy because for the average person, you want to slow down if you're afraid, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't because you lose the downforce, right? 
And so I was like, that's terrifying. Human beings would think Formula One is absolutely dangerous. And they're like, so how do you feel driving on the street? And he's like, I think that's way more dangerous than Formula One. Really? And, and the interviewer's like, why? I don't know. Like, obviously, Formula One is so like crazy. And he was just like, there's too many variables. There's too many people. There's so many things that you take into consideration on a track that you don't take consideration on, on a regular road. He's like, all of the services are perfectly paved. There's mm -hmm. no potholes. There's no extra things. If you're going around, there's no moisture on the road. There's no oil. Yeah. There's nothing usually. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and he's like, there's no drivers that are randomly just gonna like t-bone you through an intersection. There's no <laughs> red lights. There's no reason to stop at a stop sign. Is somebody gonna blow through? Like all of those variables don't exist. Don't exist. That's of right. Of course, there's other drivers to your left and your right, and you have to be wary of that. Right. But <clears throat> but you're never driving past a park where a ball might roll onto the street and a kid follows it. Right. That, that'll never happen. That is terrifying. That is terrifying. Or uh, yeah. a friend of mine, uh, more like an acquaintance, a guy that I met with, with my oldest brother, he was riding a motorcycle and uh, there was a, like a dead raccoon on the side of the road and to try and avoid it, he, had, he, like, he was like, I'm either going to hit this and just slide out because like it's a motorcycle. It's big enough that it'll create a loss in traction and I'll just fly off. Or I could just run the corner wide and hopefully still make it without hitting the curb. And he, he hit the curb. Um, he's okay. He's totally good. But just like stuff like that wouldn't happen in Formula One, right? That's exactly the type of variable that he was talking about. So, so long as you like take it seriously, control the liability, understand the risks, yeah, take some defensive driving courses, I think you're, you'll be all right. Yeah, that's key. Be equipped. So take the courses that you need yeah. to take. Get a good helmet. Oh, man. <laughs> there was uh, somebody, when I did my internship so many years ago, um, this, this guy loved motorcycling. He was actually the intern that I was training. Mm. And he had one of those old school, like, lean back motorcycles. <laughs> that was his, his, first, yeah, yeah, his yeah. first one. And he said the thing that was most expensive he was surprised by was the helmet. Yeah. And one day, they uh, range, something man. happened. He fell off the motorcycle. He was in a very low speed collision, but he still, it was fast enough that he was thrown off the bike. And he was fine, but he, he hit his head, right? And the helmet, there were these one-time use helmets. So that was yeah, absolutely. over $200 that you now have to throw away and buy oh, a new one. Way more than that sometimes. Yeah. And he came in, but you know, we were students at this time. We were interns. And $200 that you had to just throw away yeah, seemed like a lot. Real rough. Um, and he, he kind of expressed his discomfort with that. But after he talked about it. Brain. <laughs> yeah. After he said $200 versus like potentially, you know, brain damage, yeah. I would make that trade a thousand times. Yeah. A friend of mine got into a serious accident. He uh, wasn't wearing his jacket, but he was wearing, obviously he was wearing his helmet. And it was a total freak accident. He was going onto the highway and one of the gates that closed on the highway swung open. Like the ones that you, that lock in place when they're like doing road work or service work on the highway, they close off that, 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 uh, that entrance, entrance yeah. to the highway, right? So that gate actually rusted off from the latch that keeps the, it open and uh, it swung by and hit him while he was on it. And he doesn't remember oh anything because he had like a serious, serious concussion. But um, dude, the helmet like was absolutely destroyed, but he was okay. And it's, and he like had some bad road rash, separated his shoulder, had to go through surgery and stuff like that. But like his brain is totally good. And he was one of my smartest friends, like still is one of my smartest friends. He beats me at everything. He has the ability to pick up anything. <laughs> God gave him some gifts. Mm -hmm. And that was the most terrifying thing because he had like post-concussion syndrome, which is like you, every, you, you don't like to look at light. You know, have you ever had a concussion? Yeah. But yeah. I, I didn't catch, I didn't get any of those, like the staring symptoms? at a light was a big deal. Oh or... man, yeah. Staring at light, really bad migraines. What I had after mine was this ringing sound that would come and go. Really? And it was, it was something that I've always had periodically throughout my life. Like once every two months, let's say, I would just hear a ringing noise that I know wasn't real. 
and then it would just go away. And huh. I've, I've always had that in my life. And after this since concussion, then? no, 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 always since I was a kid, okay. my entire life. And it was very rare. It happened a couple times a year, you know, and it would happen for 10 seconds and then it would go away. And that was that. And after the concussion, that would happen every other day or happened very often. And just slowly it went back down just, to almost okay. never happening again. Oh, good. Whatever that right. is. Whatever that is, that's my own flavor <laughs> of insanity that yeah. I was born with or that I got when I was young. I don't know. But it, it doesn't bother me. I know that it's not real and it just comes and it goes and that's that. Yeah. No, there's, like, that's the thing that scared me the most is post-concussion post syndrome is like, he, my friend, friend of mine, he, had, like, he has the quickest wit. He's just ready to rebuttal everything that you say. And I remember like, asking him a question like, yo, what do you have this morning for breakfast? And he would just pause and look at me as if like, he couldn't understand the question. And then like three seconds later, he would answer it. And that terrified me. He only did that after the concussion. After the concussion. And then like weeks later, it went wow. away. But I was just like, oh my God. Like this guy didn't go to any classes in first year calculus and got an A+. Plus. Like <laughs> this guy did not care. He Massively like intelligent yeah. dude. He just won the genetic lottery, as they say. Came out no, super, he, super smart. He also tries really hard. He's a smart dude, but... Mm -hmm. Just that was terrifying. So I take that stuff really seriously. Yeah, the idea that you might have an accident and the idea that I might have an accident and lose this, this, this piece of me that is so important to me and is so integral to me is like terrifying. This is, it's always a thing that I think about from time to time. I just, a lot of people love cycling, right? And mm -hmm. I think I love more than, like so many developers I've noticed bike to work. Like where I used to work, more than any other place I've worked, people bike all, biked all the time. I was like so confused by this. It's like a weird stereotype that exists in was my office. Was it in a good location for cycling or yeah, what? That's probably the reason. But uh, it, it always boggles me. Because like, cyclists don't, some don't wear helmets. Most don't wear helmets. Let's be real. Mm -hmm. And you can actually get a ticket for that. But they're all open face helmets, right? All of them. Yeah, yeah all of them. And motorcycles, open face helmets are like, you only see like bikers, like a... People who ride choppers or like Honda Goldwings, like those cruisers and stuff like yeah. that, wear open face ones. Otherwise, people wear full face helmets, right? I don't think I'd be caught. Like if if they started selling full face helmets for bikes, I would wear. You would wear one. Yeah. I've thought about before, especially in winter, just putting on my snowboarding helmet, <laughs> using that. Sorry. Especially like today, like I was cycling today and it's snowing and it gets in your eyes. It's not nice. Yeah. So just put just on the helmet, put on the goggles. goggles. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, but it, it does make a lot of sense, too, that I want a good weird, helmet. Yeah. It would look weird. But I want a good helmet in case something happens. Because Just a NASA spacesuit. <laughs> That's what I yeah. think about. Every time it gets super cold outside, I was just like, we got to get one. Just steal one from NASA. Temperature regulated. Oh, oh man. With the heating and the cooling. Oh, the whole man. suit. For like $40 million or whatever it <laughs> cost. Put on the space gloves that lock. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, those are great. They gotta survive in the vacuum of space and heat you and cool you, depending on if the sun is out or not. It's several hundred degrees different. That's so insane. So beautiful. So many weird design decisions they have to make because of the environmental conditions out there. Like, what was the? They had to design pens just so they could write in uh, in space in that in yeah. with zero gravity. And that's the joke that that's the kind of thing that engineers love doing. <laughs> like a, a normal person would just take a pencil. Yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. I never even thought about Pencils that. don't matter, right? But the ink from a fountain pen or a ballpoint <laughs> pen wouldn't so work. Funny. But no, we want to solve those problems. Dude, that's so funny. Engineers, man. Take a pencil. Take a fucking pencil. <laughs> wow. Sometimes the solutions are the simplest. You overthink them.
Wow, that really, that, that's a, I'm going to think about that a lot from, from now on, the pencil. It's a, Do it's I really need to solve this problem? Thinking so outside of the box that it's inside the box. Like <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The answer is so obvious. It's right there in front of you. Yeah. You don't need a pen in space. <laughs> uh, there's so many interesting problems about spacefaring, like how they shower in space, mm. right? Because the water that you put into the shower doesn't drip down. So as you're pumping water onto yourself to shower, if you don't deal with that, you'll drown yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't just put a drain, right? So they, ha they have to have a little vacuum There's that no sucks way. up the water. This is something I've never considered. Mm -hmm. That is terrifying. Whoa. There was, a, there was a movie that I don't remember the name of now. I'm terrible with names. But the premise is that everybody's asleep for 70 years. Oh, uh, uh, I saw this... Uh, a couple weeks yeah. ago. And then there's all kinds of failures that happen yeah. on, the, on the ship. And one of them is the artificial gravity is lost as she's in the pool swimming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course what happens, these waters, water just starts to collect in one giant bubble. and She's stuck in the middle of it. Yeah, because the water particles are so loose that you can't push them aside to move yourself forward. Yeah. Because they're not tightly packed. So you actually start drowning while you're floating in a bubble of water. Terrifying. Terrifying. Like, I think I actually had nightmares about that afterwards. Um, but it's so interesting. When are you ever going to be in zero gravity? Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm not worried about it, but that's not the way your subconscious yeah, works. That's true. Just wake up in a cold sweat. <laughs> and think about if the sweat's going to drown you. Yeah. Oh, God, no, stop. <laughs> the space problems are so... The, the cup in space just, is just a plastic thing where the water will stick to the plastic. Like, the fluid will stick together yeah, into the plastic because surface tension is more prevalent than the free-floating desire of particles. So then how do you drink from this thing? Well, the cup just has a curved edge that when you touch it to your lips, the water, the surface tension just flows the liquid into your mouth. That's just... How do you prototype that? How do you... You don't. You don't. <laughs> you just have a bunch of different design <laughs> ideas that you just ship to the International Space Station and try. You, you simulate... You have to simulate it, right? Uh, That's what they had to do. They had to design a cup and then simulate it on a computer and then try it in space. Because we can't try that on Earth. It's not possible. Just leave it to... Uh, who's the developer of... Uh, was it Doom? The guy wrote a new engine for every iteration of the game. What? No. Who was it? That couldn't have been a game like Doom. Writing an engine is, Doom is or a lot It was one of those earlier games. Uh, what was his name? He's a super well-known developer. Uh, or game designer, game developer. Oh, okay. the name is. But what, what did he do? He... Every so he had the first Doom One, Doom Two, Doom Three, whatever. Something the like game that, was. yeah. And he would release a new engine with every iteration of the game, kind of sort of like, I guess Half Life, bring back to Half Life Three, confirm. Right. So and rather build, than building on what you did last time, yeah, and I think they did build off of each other. Like he would add new things and refactor things in the engine. But we need to get that guy to write the zero gravity engine for the simulations. <laughs> He's the one we need. He's the one. There's nobody. Yeah. There's something so valuable about doing that. About not just learning from your mistakes and making iterative improvements, but learning from the architectural decisions from before and doing it all from scratch mm. and applying the, the things that you learned didn't quite work as well as you'd hope. Finding a new architecture that does work better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've really learned that through my years. And it's not about different projects that you've had. Sometimes it's honestly about you have to be tackling the exact same problem set in order to improve on your architecture. Because a, a new game, a new piece of software, 90% of that architecture is different than everything you've done before. Mm -hmm. 
there's only very specific things that are common that you can re-architecture. The thing that comes to mind for me is database interactions. Right? You are likely to see the exact same kinds of database interactions across a couple different systems. Drill it. Do it. Yeah, without exposing any company secrets, I, I think that's all I can <laughs> talk about. I would love to, I should ask the company if I can open source some of this, some of the, the lessons that I've learned and the, the presentations that I've given on those. They probably wouldn't mind. Yeah, depending. Unless you're IBM, right? Oh, God. They still, <laughs> you were they just finished that, right? owning my ideas according to the contract. Seriously? The, it was three years you couldn't work on anything related, related and five years you couldn't talk about any company secrets. That's, that's that a real thing. On. That's a real thing. As an intern. So technically, even after they abandoned the project that I worked on, no I way. couldn't talk about it. There's so, I don't know how I feel about that. The, I think the only NDA, I, I'm still in my undergrad, I'm in my last semester, so I'm like very close to graduating. And I've only ever signed one NDA and it was working on personal health records. Basically, if I came into any personal health record, I obviously can't expose right. people's personal health information. Right. So, uh, and that, that's totally understandable. Nothing about ideas or like the problems I'm working on or the, the things I'm making or the services themselves. Mm. So I, I'm happy about that so far. And that's the way that it should be, right? It, ideally, a company shouldn't need to leverage secrets in order to produce something useful for the, that's economically feasible. The benefit should come from the arrangement of the organization, right? And the, the arrangement of the software, the arrangement of the people. So I'll give you a simple example. Like online streaming services, Netflix does that better than anybody else has ever done that. And that's where they make money. If somebody tries to compete with Netflix, they can't do it as good as Netflix. You think so? That's the benefit. Nothing what, about what Netflix's is it that architecture. Netflix has that is so good because there's other streaming services that exist, and all of the the ways that they're doing not necessarily the ways they're doing things, but for example, like the algorithm that streams you different quality, like different versions of quality. That's something mm -hmm. that's commonly known, right? That's called Dash, and that exists on a lot of services. Depending on your bit rate, they calculate right. what version they should give you of the, of the video and audio, and then they give that to you, right? They stream that to you. Mm -hmm. There's so many companies that do stuff like that. Like, what is it that Netflix is, is genuinely doing? Or is it just the original content and the vastness of their library? Like, because I wouldn't even say vastness, right? Like, a lot of people have saturated, like, they've watched so much shit, and they have a hard time finding what to watch on Netflix, right? Yeah, finding new, new content. But is that just because we're consuming it at such a fast rate, or...? I think it's got to be that because doesn't Netflix release like ten or twenty things a week? I have no idea. TV shows, movies, like their content network is is gigantic, right? Uh, Can we talk about recommender systems, man? Because that's been <laughs> bothering me a lot. You, you have a gripe with the Facebook, with the Netflix recommendation no, system? No, it's just like the general use of it. Like in so many products I use, there's some type of recommender system that exists. Right. And so, like, for example, Spotify has music that you'll like as well, or music that's related to what you were just listening to, or, like, movies that are exactly like this. You like war documentaries? Let me give you seven documentaries about Vietnam, you know? Things like that. And I, I don't know, man. I feel like that's too pigeonholing. Like, sometimes you want to listen to or watch something that's not related at all to what you've been watching, right? And, right. And, and you might love it, and you don't know because you don't get right. those kinds of recommendations. You, they won't show you that kind of stuff. Like, even my YouTube is just, like... It's literally like four categories of things that I watch, and they just keep giving it. me that same content from those same. Yeah, you know I get what I mean? the exact same thing from YouTube, and it's to the point of, of frustration. Yeah, like I remember I too. I open a private browser window when I go on YouTube now, just because I'm so frustrated with it, and just log out of everything. Like, right, yeah. get a fresh perspective. Yeah, on what they, yeah, I know what you mean, and I really have a I really have a bone to pick too with YouTube's search and the way that it recommends things. 
I find if I search for something specific, um, I was, for example, searching for a talk on testing in Ruby on how to structure your test, how to write good tests. And I, I, I typed in all the keywords. I, I tried to remember what year it was. I did a couple searches trying to find it. As I'm scrolling down and scrolling down, every third or fourth result was something totally unrelated to what I was searching <laughs> for. Like, didn't contain any of the words in my search query. Really? Yep, they were just things that were popular or they were kind of clickbaity. They were things that YouTube mm. guessed that I would probably want to watch. That makes me, but that's not the reason you're searching. No. I, an example the other day, I was, I was searching for a remix to the Jay-Z and whatever song called Otis. And it was mm. a specific remix by a yeah, specific yeah. artist. And as I was searching for it and scrolling through, I would get other songs that were, that were not Jay-Z or not any of the artists. They were clearly a different song. They weren't at all related to what I searched for. And that was every third result. And you can't filter by actual relevance. You can't change the way that it's searching. Yeah, that's, that's weird, man. I don't like that. But yeah, my, my gripe with it is just like, sometimes you want to go, like, in, in, like you just want to go and find something entirely different. Like the other day, mm -hmm. I, you walk into a coffee shop and you're listening to some music you never heard before. And, and you're like, I love this. Like, regardless of what it is, like, I want to know more about this. You like ask the person who works there if it's their playlist or something like that. They give you some awesome information. Mm -hmm. And those, those are such beautiful moments. And I, and I understand that there's like a, you don't want to give people random shit all the time because they're just going to be like, why are you giving me this? Like if it's, yeah. if it's something Sometimes they, they do don't want like. Comfort. Yeah. But I just wish there was like the ability to tweak it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I feel like software back in the day, you would be able, you had so much more configuration over your options. Now it's just like they just give you this window and you have to use it and that's it. There's mm -hmm. no options menus or at least the Spotify menu is just like, do you want to download this music? What quality music do you want? And like, what's your login? And I, I don't know. There's there's no real like yeah. There's less that can be done. Personalization on how things work. Yeah. Hide this category. Move this menu. Something like that. Yeah, I really feel that things are more cookie cutter. Yeah. You get A, B, or C, and those are the only options. You can't adjust it to your liking. Kind of bothers me a little bit. But I, I also think the majority of people who use the service don't care as much. I think m maybe we're a bad sample size for that. No, I we think both love to customize. I've talked to a lot of people about this, and I feel like they share the same opinion. Like, you don't always want to listen to the same Nirvana playlist or the same, you know what I mean? That's but, right. Well, I definitely share that perspective on YouTube and on uh, other streaming services. That some I, services have it all right, though. Mm -hmm. uh, some do it right. I find Twitch does it right. Every time I go on, hmm. there's something interesting that I might want to listen to or watch front and center. And the discovery is, is interesting. Yeah. I don't do it nearly as, as much as I, I haven't been on Twitch in quite a while. Mm. Kind of strayed. Yeah, what do you? Where do you go to? I'm just content? busy, honestly. Yeah, just having conversations with people. I try and stay away from because I used to watch some streams just religiously all the time. And then that's like the thoughts that just like saturate my mind when I'm doing anything else. Yeah, because yeah. you you're overexposed on that content. Yeah, I know what you mean. I used to wake up and every morning as I was fixing and eating my breakfast, I would put on Co Carnage, the stream on Twitch. Mm. Um, super popular, excellent channel. He's on every single day at eight o'clock in the morning. Wow. And, and spectacular streamer. But I, yeah, I noticed that I was constantly thinking about that as well. And I didn't like that. Yeah. Or it's like once you you listen to music, like I would listen to music every day on my daily commute and just not get, not accept any other media. Like I wouldn't watch movies. I wouldn't read books. I was just listening to music every day on my daily commute. And then you eventually have to switch it up. You're like, I have to listen to an interview. I have to listen to a podcast. I need to read a book. Mm -hmm. Started doing that a lot more. And then even after all that, 
I realized that I was just like never having time to reflect. And, and you have to, you have to find the balance. Like sometimes now I'll just, just like, don't even bring my headphones. Don't bring books. Leave that out of your bag. Yeah. Put your phone in your bag where you can't reach Somewhere, it. Somewhere. Yeah. Force yourself to be, I know what right. you mean. Cause sometimes just that, that urge to just grab your headphones. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's some, there's some sort of itch in me to always yeah. be busy or occupied with something. Yeah. And the idea of just sitting on the subway, it takes a bit of energy to, to say, no, I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. Yeah. It's easier to grab a game, uh, a video, a podcast. But it's so important. I forget where I was hearing this, but it was theorized that module in your brain that, that does entry, or, um, empathy, mm-hmm. that is only active when you're doing nothing, when you're daydreaming. And so the time to develop empathy for other people's situations and other things that are happening in the world develop when you're sitting idle and reflecting yeah Mm. and it's been theorized that part of the reason why globally empathy seems to be less prevalent today than it was 40 years ago is because people are daydreaming less than ever before Mm. yeah i just feel like with the amount of things i try and keep in my brain at once i uh I, i tend to just get lost lost in the sauce my friends would say lost in the sauce (laughs) i've never heard that one it's uh actually another thing that came from that that ux ui course that i took in my last year was um the idea that your brain can handle so only so many transformation mental transformations so for example if you have a task that you want to accomplish and you have a series of steps that you need to accomplish this this task there's only so many mental transformations that you can undergo before you lose yourself in the complexity. And what we called it in the course was the five plus or minus two rule. So some people can deal, it's a, so that becomes a range. It becomes from three to seven mental transformations. Right. Some people have a greater grasp on complexity and they're able to just navigate through complexity better than others. And some people, not so much. So for example, if you're writing software and you're like, oh, I want to write this line of code, but then you're in Vim and you're not ready for those, those mental transformations that you need to make. You're like, oh, I have to put myself in insert mode. I have to do all these other interactions to try and get it and then hit it and save. Like those are all extra things that you have to do to accomplish that task. And your brain is only ready for so many. I get what you mean. So it, this, what I'm hearing from that too is knowing your tools is important. Yeah. As you get so comfortable that you don't have to think about putting yourself in insert mode, you just instinctively do that. That's one less mental transformation you have to think about. Yeah. And so that, w- that was one of the things they pushed for in the course is just like, don't add a billion menus for things. Don't like so it, it stretches into every every uh, sub design category that you have. Like if it's some menu interface, if it's like I don't know. For example, we used ATM interfaces a lot in that course. I don't know why. What's an ATM interface? Just like the way an ATM is. There's like the four oh. buttons on the side. Okay. On each side of it, and you press those buttons to select options. Like that's essentially just a, a series of menus and sub menus, right? Yep. And you have different paths you can take. Right. And so that's kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> I don't know. There's certain things that you should do or shouldn't do. Like if you want to deposit money, like how many steps does that really take before you forget kind of what you're doing? In that scenario, this complexity isn't so grand that it becomes a problem. But you can see how it becomes a problem in other situations. So it's just just handle the mental transformations you're making your user undergo. Right. So it sounds like minimize the number of steps, the hoops they need to jump through to get to their goal, to get to their task. Some tools do this really well and some don't. Like if I want to save some code, some files and upload that to a repo to save it. Like Git is just like stage these changes and commit them and then push. And then push. Yeah. Yeah. And that's only really three mental transformations to accomplish that task, right? Yeah. That's that's on the low end. That's perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, 
And some people would argue that's high. Some people high. would argue that's yeah. high because there's other languages where the, co the commit and the push are one operation, one, yeah. one fluid thing, which I don't, I don't like. I like having that separation of concerns. Yeah. So I have control over what I'm wanting to do. To be honest, I haven't tried a lot of other things. So in this course that I'm taking this semester, they're making us use something called Fossil that apparently people like. Hmm. It's Never heard of it. Very similar. Um, a lot of the verbs are the same too, like pushing, committing, like all that kind of stuff is the same. But I think it's been the case for a lot of uh, yeah, they can be different, like repo and branch and merge. And, yeah, because like what was SVN? Like trunks and, and stuff like yeah. that. I, I, never, I never used that, so I wouldn't know. But I've only used it briefly, so I don't know either. But cool, I'm gonna check out Fossil because I've never heard of that. Yeah, I think one of the main allure, like this, this professor I have is, uh, I must confess, I do not like very much. He's a pretty ridiculous <laughs> guy, but uh, he's adamant about just trying new things, which I'm on board with. So let's try it. Let's see what's good and bad about right. it. And, so his argument for it was, we're doing a course project and you're gonna need much more than just uh, like version control system. And so Fossil comes in with, uh, you can type in like Fossil UI and what it does is it runs a, a server that you can access via like a local host ports. And then- In uh, your browser? Yeah, in your browser. And it comes with uh, a wiki, it comes with uh, issue tracker, and it comes Whoa. with other things that you can just host. And then you can, all of those changes you can also upload to the repo. Hmm. So your readme for the project is built into the tool you Kind use. of. It's, it's almost like if you had like a really simplified version of like GitLab or GitHub built into the source control, or the version control Interesting. system. Interesting. Well, that's almost what GitLab and GitHub are. Right. They have right. all those extra little things that you really like. Yeah. You can tie it easily to a pipeline. You can tie it. If you have a certain format of readme, it will display it right. that way. Right. Yeah. Which Interesting. is, what is it? Markdown or restructured? Text? They support both. Yeah. I don't think I've ever used restructured text. I've, I've used both Markdown and Restructured. I like Markdown better. Um, at this point, though, there's vanilla Markdown, there's GitHub Markdown, and GitLab Markdown, and there's probably others that I'm forgetting. And there's enough differences between mm. them that I, I forget which one's which at this I point. I always use the, the cheat sheets, the various ones. Yeah. Google. Actually, the, the episode notes for each episode, I've made them in Markdown, but I found that the way that I'm able to render that markdown as HTML, it doesn't support variable width. So it doesn't resize the paragraphs if I shrink my viewport down to the size of a phone, hmm. for example. So I, I rewrote it in vanilla markdown, which does support that. Oh, wow. Uh, at least based on the plugin that I was using to, yeah, to yeah. render the markdown. To render it, yeah. Uh, so that's, I don't know, that was an interesting thing that I didn't hmm. expect. So there, there's all these different derivatives, and that's, it's such a key thing in, in are in the software world. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be people who think, I love what you're doing. I think I can make it a little bit better. Yeah. And they, you know, they add that extra functionality. Yeah. So this is, it's a cool, I guess it's a really cool version control system for people who are new or you're doing an in-class assignment where it's just small enough that you don't want to pay for that hosting or deal with like, you know, GitLab right. stuff like that. But, uh, and I'm sure it won't be too difficult to, to conceptually get behind. Like if you've used mm -hmm. Git, I mean, yeah, okay. at this point, it has to be a certain minimum of user-friendliness, or it's never going to gain traction. I had a developer in my office who's uh, a lot older than I am, in his, his 50s or late 50s, say that he strongly dislikes Git. Like, not, not Git entirely, but he hates the command line. And mm. I, I was kind of confused by this, because, I mean, so many people love it, right? I've never really considered, I've never really had a lot of emotions on it. I was just like, this thing does what I need to do. But he was like, the verbs and the way that it stores information in some of the configs, it's just like he didn't like it. That was, that was he didn't like it. That's fair. There are certain things that, 
some people complain about, they wanted it to be automatic. So for example, if you've got commits or you've got a, a small change that you haven't staged and you want to switch branches because you want to take a look at something, why should I have to get stash and then change branches and then change branches back and then get stash pop? Yeah, why that, can't it just do that for me? What is the use, use case for that? Like wh why, why do they force you to do that? I've never... I, I get that it's different. You get control, right? And also it does mean that if these... I accidentally forgot to check out the branch that I intended these changes for. Mm -hmm. I'll stash them, go to the other branch, pop them, right. and now they're applied. That might be what I want to do, or I just want to pause the work that I'm doing, go take a look at something on master, you know, prove if a bug is yeah, there or totally. not, and come back to my work. And Git gives me the flexibility to do whatever the hell I need to do, right, without having opinions. But some people, they don't want all those extra steps. They want it to take a best guess at what, mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do and automatically do that for me. So it's less uh, transformations, like you're saying in your mind. Yeah. Less things that you have to think about. Yeah, one thing he, he expressed that he hated was how Git dealt with remotes. And I, mm. and something it I, is weird. Have you ever had multiple remotes? Never, I've never had the, them? Mm. When have you? When would you need that? I don't, I don't entirely understand what the use for that is. Uh, I'll give you a great example. We were migrating uh, all of our code from one Git repository system. In this case, we were moving from GitHub to GitLab. And there was a brief time where I had both remotes set up mm -hmm. and I could pull and push from either one. That, that, see, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. That's a perfectly good example. Thank you for that. I never really considered that, but he, he expressed that he hated it. Hmm. He was just like, it just, I don't understand why I have to do it for every project. And I guess that's the reason. Oh, especially when you create a new branch and you mm -hmm. want to set up remote tracking. Yeah. It doesn't automatically do that. You have to specify, I would like to create that branch on the other side and hook it up to the branch that I've given the same name to. Yeah, or even uh, one another thing that he didn't like, that uh, he was like, um, for example, you can push your code using like HTTPS or you can use like the Git, the Git SSH. Yeah. And he was like, I don't understand why the path to your Git repo changes depending on it. So if you add like two-factor auth and stuff like that or use the SSH method, it's not like uh, github.com slash then your username and slash repo. It's like github colon your username and then like dot something for your, your repo name. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, I don't understand why they didn't consolidate that convention. Like I always have to look it up every time I'm using that method. That's right. One of them is a path to like the HTTP, the web Which browser path. Sense, yeah. The other one is to something that ends with dot git. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was just like, I don't, it kind of makes me mad because technically I think. They should, why aren't they the same? They yeah. could be, right? Maybe they could be, maybe they can't. I don't know the protocol. Yeah, I genuinely don't know. But, uh, um, but I, I, I actually share that frustration. When I want to clone a repo, my intuitively I'll grab the URL from the browser. That's not the way I have to do it. Mm -hmm. I have to click on the clone button and then it pops up with a little text box and I copy that. Yeah, yeah. it is an extra step that I, I wish I didn't have to do. Yeah. yeah. One thing I thought that was super interesting, actually my prof brought this up, is he was saying Fossil, so this other version control software that exists. Um, so it has to store some metadata about what branch you're on, whatever, mm -hmm. right? And so Git does that by having the .git folder. It stores it in a single file. I thought that was just insane. So the configuration, the current state, as Everything. well as history? Yeah. That seems like so a bit much. <laughs> but he's like, it's beautiful, because then you could just drag over one file and you have everything. And I was like, but it's, so, it's the same thing. You can just drag over one directory. <laughs> yeah. Why well, not too this? much different. <laughs> I don't know. It just sounds like a headache. Yeah, managing the architecture of a single file. And imagine like handling version changes. 
So you changed the schema of how you store the current state because you found a better way. Now you have to deal Change. with this giant multi-megabyte file yeah. and adjust one byte offset of that. It seems more confusing to me. Interesting. Yeah, separation of concerns is important there. I wouldn't want to put the current state, the configuration, and all the history in one place. Yeah. Um, we've been going for, oh wow, two hours, 20 minutes. Damn. So let's, uh, is there lot. anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap this up? I know it's been a, we've covered a lot already. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm all talked out. And I think we covered everything that was on my list. Uh, I did want to mention, I mean, I can always add this. I need to figure out how to add stuff extra to the end of the episode. Mm. But one of the things I wanted to mention was there's a Toronto-based uh, news company that's a startup. They've been around, I think, for two or three years now called Pressed News. Okay. Um, and I recently had a conversation with them, mm. which was super interesting and I got some good info on what it was like for them to start a podcast and what they had to learn. And the person who interviewed me, Jacqueline, was an excellent interviewee. So I'm, I'm learning something from that recording. Mm. Right, experiencing a good interview from somebody else. So that was really interesting. So I want to shout out to Press News. You guys are awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, and it's honestly been an inspiration that has helped me in this podcast already, even before we spoke. Wow. Yeah. Shout out to the community and good people. Yeah. Really nice people. And there, are, there are some excellent um, people and businesses here in Toronto doing doing things that I really believe in, that I wish I could... <laughs> throw more weight into, you know, help, help along. Firefox, fire. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, Mozilla. Yeah, their tool called, I think it's called Privacy Badger, uh, not Privacy Badger. I think they own that as well, though. There's a tool that, um, I think it's called Canary, where you point it at your website, and it combs through as much as it can. It looks at the configuration, the version of the server, all the file, all the JavaScript and everything, and gives you recommendations of, like, you've done this properly, or... This is not done quite right. There's a vulnerability here. Take a look. Please mm. fix it. Um, and it's a tool that they've created and open sourced and are not, you know, clearly not making money from that actually will benefit the world. It's, it, right? it's in everybody's interest that there are fewer insecure websites on the internet. Yeah. So shout out to those guys. Like they're, they're doing what the world needs. Seriously. Or, or one tool I use... Uh, a decent amount is you know like OWASP the OWASP yeah. yeah they have a talk coming up uh, this Wednesday actually in Toronto oh nice you should uh, are you going I'm going oh it's on Wednesday I'll I'll, uh, I'll link it in the episode notes okay yeah I, they have like a really small web server or a website that's up just for it's like a wiki it just tells you about simple stuff but even stuff as small as like cross-site scripting mm -hmm. they had like a one lovely little point on their website that was like um what do they call it? The cross-site scripting polyglot. And essentially, it's just a single line of code, but that it you post it in anything that's going to end up persisting through the website that shows up somewhere else. And it tests for all different types of cross-site scripting hmm. uh, vulnerabilities. So one is like JavaScript or breaking regular expressions and stuff like that. Like there's a ton of different little ones that it tries, tries all of them in this one line. It's, it's wow. beautiful, yeah. So it's this tool that people can grab. Yeah, it just paste it into your comments box. And then save that comment and see what happens. <laughs> and see if it works or not. I don't know what it does. Maybe it just pops up an alert or something like that. But yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a really great project. There's a team of people who are interested in web application security yeah. for other people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I respect it. I love it. All right. 
Paul, thanks so much for coming back on the episode on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the coffee. <laughs> no problem. <laughs>